This is Audible. McGraw Hill Audio presents What It Takes to Be Number One. Vince Lombardi on Leadership by Vince Lombardi Jr. Read by Michael Pritchard. Prologue Vince Lombardi and the Quest for Leadership. Imagine that sometime in the near future, you live through one of those opening scenes from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You're driving your SUV down a deserted country road on a moonlit night. Suddenly, the calm of the summer night is shattered by the arrival of a spaceship just ahead of you on the road. You are apprehensive but unafraid. A strange-looking creature emerges, and you discover that you're able to communicate with each other. The creature looks you in the eye and says, Take me to your leader. What will you do? Take him to the White House? To your State House? Maybe you'd be more inclined to go roust out the CEO of your company. Maybe the first person you'd think of is your town's mayor, or the superintendent of schools. The creature has asked you to put a face on leadership. For me, and maybe for you, that would be a difficult task today. Why? Because today a legitimate leader is hard to find. We live in a time when authority is questioned, gratification is instant, morals are relative, ethics are situational, and the truth is apparently what we decide it is. We lead lives of comfort and ease, and, as a result, we've lost our hunger to lead and achieve. Today, fewer people are willing to make the sacrifices that are necessary to become a leader. Leadership is not just one quality, but rather a blend of many qualities. And while no one individual possesses all of the needed talents that go into leadership, each man can develop a combination to make him a leader. The quote comes from my father, Vince Lombardi. In my opinion, Lombardi developed the qualities and talents that make a leader. Most people who know football agree. Vince Lombardi was one of the greatest football coaches in the history of the professional game. In ten seasons as a head coach in the National Football League, nine with the Green Bay Packers and one with the Washington Redskins, Lombardi compiled a truly amazing record. 105 wins, 35 losses, and six ties. His Packers played in six world championship games and won five, including the first two Super Bowls. His postseason record of nine victories and a single defeat is unrivaled in the history of professional football. So, how exactly did my father accomplish what he did? How did he attain number one status? Equally important, how did he consistently maintain it? I believe that the answer to these questions lies not in one game plan or another, but in an approach to life, a philosophy of leadership. And that's what this book is about. I think I have a unique perspective on Vince Lombardi. He died when I was 28 years old.
That means I had the privilege of spending not only my childhood with him, but also much of my young adulthood. As a child, I knew, respected, and loved him. And in those simple times, he was simply a father to me. Eventually, I knew that the world saw him as someone special. That only confirmed what the boy already knew. I also got to know him again as an adult. As I grew older, I came to understand that, just like the rest of us, he had his blind spots and shortcomings. We agreed on the big things and disagreed on a lot of the smaller ones, but I never doubted his leadership abilities. I know I'll never meet another leader quite like him. In my own life, I have been a lawyer, politician, writer, and National Football League and United States Football League executive. I've also done a lot of public speaking, and now I do it for a living as a professional speaker. In all of those contexts, I've been amazed at the consistent level of interest that people have shown in my father. When I speak, I very often have people my own age or older come up to me and tell me that my father was a hero to them. They tell me that they have my father's famous quote, what it takes to be number one, hanging in their office or den. These are people who cut their football teeth on the Packers when the team was at the pinnacle of football success in the 1960s. In addition, the Packers, although from the smallest NFL city, weren't just a local phenomenon. Because of their success, they were very often one of the two teams in the second game of a nationally televised doubleheader. So people from all over the country got to know Vince Lombardi and his proud Packers. In the 1960s, all across America, people grew up on the Packers. What truly amazes me is the number of younger people many of them born after my father's death in 1970, who also speak about him as a hero and role model. This is just a guess, but I sometimes think that the level of public interest in my father is actually increasing. An excellent biography by David Marinus, published in 1999, has only intensified the spotlight that shines on my father's memory. How many sports figures are still accumulating new fans 30 years after their death? What is the cause of this interest, even fascination? I think people are fascinated by a coach who, although focused and ambitious, wasn't particularly interested in the limelight. In fact, he was painfully shy, and the kind of easy banter that today's coach is supposed to be able to engage in never came easily to my father. A coach who didn't land his first head coaching job, other than at the high school level, until the relatively advanced age of 46. A coach who rarely went out of his way to make life easy for journalists, and, perhaps because of that, sometimes received rough treatment at their hands. Obviously there's a hunger out there for the kind of leadership that my father embodied. I'm not a psychologist, nor am I a historian, but it seems to me that a leadership vacuum opened up in this country during the 1960s. Our national leaders looked at the lengthening list of seemingly intractable problems. 
Vietnam, race relations, and increasing levels of crime and violence, and political humiliations, beginning but not ending with Watergate. And a tragic thing happened. They lost confidence in themselves. Then the next tragic thing happened. The rest of us lost confidence in our leaders. In a few short years we became a nation of doubters, despite the fact that our nation was then, and still is today, the wealthiest, most powerful, and most opportunity-filled nation on earth. Vince Lombardi was one of the few leaders on the national stage who didn't seem to have any doubts. He was intense. He was articulate. He believed in his leadership ability. And he had a win-loss record that made believers out of a lot of other people. He expressed the opinion, forcefully and unapologetically, that the pursuit of victory, fairly and squarely and within the rules, was life's great challenge. Not victory for its own sake, but victory as a test. A test of how far you could push yourself to your limits and beyond a test of your ability to overcome your doubts and weaknesses, and a test of how much of your God-given talent and ability you were willing to expend in the pursuit of success and victory. A case in point. Vietnam was frustrating in part because it was a limited war. As a nation, how could we commit fully to winning a war that could be fought only in limited ways? And here's someone not from Washington or New York, but from Wisconsin, reminding us what an unlimited commitment looked like. The similarities between football and warfare probably reinforced this subconscious connection. Here's someone who, on what seemed like an annual basis, got to celebrate joyful victories. No wonder Vince Lombardi got rooted so deeply in the American psyche. Why Another Leadership Book In this book I want to present a clear picture of my father's leadership model. I'm sure that there are at least a few people out there who groaned when they read that last sentence. Not another book on leadership. What can possibly be said about leadership that hasn't already been said ad nauseum? My answer is, given the absence of leadership today in all walks of life, Perhaps a lot has been written about it, but not enough has been read and internalized. How many books and articles about leadership are published every year? Hundreds? Thousands? You'd think that all those authors would have satisfied the demand by now. Not true. In a recent survey of corporate executives in this country, Half of the respondents reported that their organizations lack the leadership that will be needed to assure their success into the 21st century. But I'll be more candid than many authors of leadership books. I'll admit up front that you may not learn anything new about leadership from this book. But I think there's an excellent chance that you will find a framework and a model that's compelling, practical, and durable. In other words, there's a chance that some of the principles outlined in this book will stick with you. And that's the important point. How many diets does it take for you to get down to the weight you want? Just one. 
the one you stick with. How many times do you have to reorganize your desk, your office, your approach to your job, before you experience some of the changes you'd like to see? Just one. The reorganization you commit to and discipline yourself to stick with. How many different approaches to leadership do you have to sample before you begin to see some positive results? Just one. The one that you understand, believe in, internalize, commit to, and stick with. Fundamentals win it. Football is two things. It's blocking and tackling. I don't care about formations or new defenses or tricks on defense. If you block and tackle better than the team you're playing, you'll win. Because it is fundamentally sound, I think my father's leadership model was and is a compelling one. It may prove to be the one you can believe in, commit to, and stick with. Why? In part because leadership is exercised on many levels and in many contexts, and I think my father's model works well on all those levels. It can help you be number one on the football field, although this is only, incidentally, a football book. It can help you be number one at the office, in your community, and in the hearts of your loved ones. Lombardi's leadership model is about finishing first, but it's also about finishing what you start, rather than quitting and compromising on your goals. One of my father's gifts was his ability to turn a few ideas into a call to action. Most important of all, to be successful in life demands that a man make a personal commitment to excellence and to victory, even though the ultimate victory can never be completely won. Yet that victory might be pursued and wooed with every fiber of our body, with every bit of our might and all our effort. And each week there is a new encounter. Each day there is a new challenge. It's okay with me if somebody says, This doesn't sound like the model for me. But I hope no one says, I'm not a leader, so this book isn't for me. Even if you don't sit in the corner office, or give speeches, or lead a pro football franchise, you are a leader or on your way to becoming one. If you're a parent, you're certainly a leader. If you're a good friend or a good neighbor, you're a leader. People are learning from the model of your life. They are deciding to emulate things that you do well, and maybe resolving to avoid doing some of those other things that you do. You're a leader. The question is, what kind of leader are you capable of becoming? In this book, I'll draw upon the letters, speeches, and other writings that my father left behind. Unless otherwise attributed, the quotes on these pages are my father's. In his own way, he was an extremely articulate person. I respected that quality in him enormously. So, whenever possible, I'll let him speak for himself. I'll do my best to quote him in context, protecting the sense of what I think he was trying to say. A lot of my father's comments show up out of context and are confusing, misleading, or both. That's unfortunate. I believe that words have power and energy. 
As a leader, you can call forth this energy as you link words together. Words are the tools of a leader. Someone once said that Winston Churchill mobilized the English language and sent it into battle to steady his fellow countrymen. In this book, you'll see many examples of how my father used words to persuade people to give him their absolute best effort. You can do the same. The converse is also true. Used poorly, or maliciously, words can cause great pain and confusion. They can demotivate and negate effort. My father made some mistakes with words, as all leaders do, and we'll look at those as well. Throughout this book, I'll draw on my personal experiences and understanding of the man. As noted at the beginning of this introduction, I think that my nearly three decades of proximity to him gives me a special insight into his leadership philosophy. I'll also weave my own observations about leadership into the chapters that follow. I've been a manager and a leader in a variety of large and small organizations. I've learned quite a bit about what motivates people and about what works and what doesn't work in a business setting. In the course of my professional speaking career, I've struck up dialogues with literally hundreds of leaders and managers. As a result of the give and take in these exchanges, I've absorbed a great deal about the business issues and leadership challenges confronting managers in today's fast-paced workplace. One last introductory thought. Speaking of those dialogues, I once heard a discussion of a phenomenon called the tyranny of the or. This tyranny would seem to dictate that a leader can be either compassionate or results-oriented, but not both. Fair or tough, but not both. The reality, confirmed by the example of my father, is that a leader can and should possess all of these qualities. Indeed, to be a leader you should possess most or all of the many qualities mentioned in this book. Balance is not the answer. In other words, you don't become a leader who is fair by being less firm. You don't become compassionate by being less driven by results. Leaders are fair, disciplined, compassionate, results-driven, and all of the other qualities that we will cover in the Lombardi leadership model. Paradoxical? Yes, but paradox is a universal law. The day you were born is the day you begin to die. Less can be more. Logic and intuition are both necessary qualities for a leader. To lead, you must serve. Leadership cannot be taught, but must be learned. I believe my father was expressing this paradox of leadership when he said, Leaders no longer understand the relationship between themselves and the people. That is, people want to be independent and dependent, all at the same time, to assert themselves and at the same time be told what to do. Preview The Vince Lombardi Leadership Model Although he never committed his entire leadership model to paper, my father had some definite ideas on exactly what qualities were required for effective leadership. To Vince Lombardi, traits such as character and integrity were the prerequisites of leadership. 
and it is these crucial qualities that provide the bedrock for his leadership vision. Part one of this book, entitled The Foundation of Leadership, is organized around those vital leadership traits. Part two, Inspiring Others to Greatness, shows how my father applied those qualities in a leadership setting. Although much more will be said about the model throughout the book, I thought it would be helpful to start with a preview of his leadership method. Vince Lombardi felt that leadership was an evolutionary process and that the road to leadership begins with an awareness of oneself. Let's briefly look at each element. Leadership starts with self-knowledge. Self-discovery leads to self-knowledge. Only by knowing yourself, your principles and values, can you hope to become an effective leader. Self-knowledge is the basis for character. Once you understand yourself, you can start to grow and write your character. Along with good habits and competence, this creates the skills required for effective leadership. Character is the root of integrity. Without character, asserts Vince Lombardi, there can be no integrity. Integrity provides the foundation of leadership. Character and integrity are the two pillars of effective leadership. I hope that this book helps you become the leader you aspire to be and makes your victories come sooner and your successes more meaningful and enduring. Part 1. The Foundation of Leadership. What it takes to be number one. Chapter 1. Lombardi on Lombardi. I've been in football all my life, gentlemen, and I don't know whether I'm particularly qualified to be a part of anything else, except I consider it a great game, a game of many assets, by the way, and I think a symbol of what this country's best attributes are, courage and stamina and a coordinated efficiency or teamwork. At many a moment on many a day, I am convinced that pro football must be a game for madmen, and I must be one of them. Let's briefly review my father's background and career to see how he formed his leadership habits. Vincent Thomas Lombardi was born on June 11, 1913, to a vibrant and sprawling Italian-American family living in Sheepshead Bay, New York. That neighborhood was a section of Brooklyn that had once been an upper-class summer resort area but had gradually been transformed into a community for the immigrants pouring into the city through Ellis Island. His father and uncle ran Lombardi Brothers, a meat wholesaler, and young Vince got his first business education from his father, who, although more or less unschooled, ran a successful business in a cutthroat industry and an unforgiving city. When he was 15, Lombardi enrolled at Cathedral Prep, a school run by the Brooklyn Diocese for Catholic boys who hoped to become priests. Although Lombardi ultimately left Cathedral and chose a different path for himself, the church remained a central part of his belief system and his daily ritual for the rest of his life. But the reason he left Cathedral was his other great passion, football. 
The priests who ran the school strongly disapproved of football, which they condemned as violent. Vince switched to St. Francis Prep, Brooklyn's oldest Catholic school, where he was able to play competitive football for the first time. He reached his adult height and weight as a teenager, so he could hold his own physically. But more important, he discovered an intensity about football that almost guaranteed that he would play while more talented athletes with less drive stayed on the bench. Lombardi enrolled at Fordham University in the fall of 1933, football scholarship in hand. Fordham was a cloistered, intense environment run by members of the intellectually rigorous Jesuit order. The priests pushed him hard, perhaps for the first time in his life, to think about the world and his place within it. The Jesuits believed that humans could perfect themselves through hard work and dedication to excellence, principles that guided Lombardi for the rest of his life. Meanwhile, Fordham's football coach, Jim Crowley, made legendary years earlier by sports writer Grantland Rice as one of Notre Dame's four horsemen, pushed Vince as a football player. As it turned out, Lombardi was both injury-prone and not a particularly gifted athlete. But Fordham had good teams in the mid-1930s, and the defensive line, including an intense guard named Butch Lombardi, achieved regional celebrity as the seven blocks of granite that refused to yield to its opponents. After college, my father cast about for a purpose in life for two years. He didn't want to work in the family meat business. He enrolled in Fordham Law School, his father's idea, but abandoned that effort after a year. Finally, in the fall of 1939, he took a job at St. Cecilia, a parochial school in Inglewood, New Jersey, where a Fordham classmate hired him as an assistant football coach. It wasn't a full-time job, of course. Lombardi was also expected to teach physics, chemistry, and Latin. My father wooed and won his girlfriend, Marie Planitz, whose conservative Irish-German family wasn't so sure about an Italian son-in-law, and the building blocks of his adult life were now all in place—religion, family, and football. I was born on April 27, 1942. There was apparently some confusion about whether I was to be named Vincent Thomas Lombardi, Jr., my father seems to have insisted that I take his father's first name, Henry, as my middle name. My mother agreed, and I, of course, had no opinion on the subject. So I'm not a junior, although I have usually gone by that name simply because it avoids a lot of confusion. That was the same year that my father became head coach at Saints, as it was known locally, and began to build a local reputation as a football coach. At one point, Saints ran off a string of 32 unbeaten games, an astounding accomplishment for a relatively small parochial school. Lombardi parlayed this success into an assistant coaching position at his alma mater, Fordham, which he took up in the summer of 1947. This was a few months after my sister, Susan, was born, rounding out our family. Two years later, in January 1949, he took yet another assistant position, this time at the United States Military Academy at West Point, 
where he worked for head coach Colonel Earl H. Red Blake. Blake was yet another formative influence on Lombardy. Blake was devoted to football. It was more or less his entire life. He loved studying films of games, a relatively unknown technique back in the late 1940s, and worked his coaches and his players hard. He was both rigid and flexible, and he had a gift for making complex things simple, traits my father successfully imitated. Blake also was a personal friend of General Douglas MacArthur, and my father was sometimes assigned the task of showing Army game films from the preceding Saturday to the aging general in his eagle's nest atop New York's Waldorf Astoria Towers. In 1954, my father broke into the professional ranks when he took a job as an assistant coach for the New York Giants. He had hopes of getting the Giants' head coaching job, but wound up as the offensive assistant to Jim Lee Howell. By this time, Lombardi felt that he had a lot to contribute to a football team's success, and at the Giants' summer training camp in 1954, he introduced his ideas to some skeptical pros. Eventually, both sides met in the middle, for the benefit of all. Lombardi learned how to work with very gifted professional athletes, and the athletes were reintroduced to discipline and hard work. Howell had the benefit of two extraordinary assistants, my father on offense and player coach Tom Landry on defense. Both went on to lead professional teams to great successes, my father at Green Bay, and Landry at Dallas. They turned the Giants into winners, and other teams took notice. In 1957, the Philadelphia Eagles asked my father to take their head coaching position. It was tempting. After all, there were only twelve such jobs in the world, and the other eleven were spoken for. But the Eagles were in disarray not only on the field, but off the field as well. After much agonizing, he turned the Eagles down, hoping for an opportunity with a team with a better management structure. That opportunity came at the end of 1958, when one of the worst franchises in the NFL, the lowly Green Bay Packers, asked Lombardi to take over as their head coach. The once-proud Packers had just finished a miserable 1-10-1 season, the worst in the team's history. Lombardi knew he was in a strong bargaining position, and he took full advantage of that knowledge. He signed on as coach and general manager, which effectively gave him complete operating control over the team. Most people with any knowledge of football know what happened over the course of the next decade, and I've already mentioned those remarkable events in the introduction to this book. I'll have a lot to say in subsequent chapters about how Lombardi accomplished these feats, and what leadership lessons we should draw from those accomplishments. My father's professional life was devoted mainly to making his teams successful. He didn't tolerate outside interests interfering with his players' dedication to their game, and certainly wouldn't have put himself in that situation. So when I refer to my father as a leader, a manager, and a business person, I'm referring mainly to his experience as a football coach and executive. As the Packers' general manager, Lombardi ran a tight ship, and he ran it conservatively. 
He effectively dominated the Packers' seven-person executive board, a result of his success on the field, his generally recognized insight into people, and his forceful personality. He could be a hard man to argue with. In addition, though, the board gave Lombardi a lot of latitude, in part because he and its members were philosophically in tune. My father's reluctance to award big contracts, for example, dovetailed neatly with the board's own fiscal conservatism. I was a fly on the wall for most of those years in Green Bay, and I got the opportunity to see how my father ran his organization. He was an effective delegator, especially when it came to things not directly related to the success of the team on the field. He found ways to compensate in areas where he didn't have much experience, especially at the outset of his professional coaching career. He didn't hesitate to ask questions when he didn't understand something, and he didn't tolerate answers that he considered half-baked. He stepped down as Packer head coach at the end of the 1967 season, retaining his general manager's job. Although he needed a break and a change, he realized quickly that he had made a serious mistake. After a year of self-imposed idleness, he surprised the football world by announcing that he had agreed to serve as the head coach of the Washington Redskins, a team run by the celebrated lawyer Edward Bennett Williams. He was putting the Lombardi legend on the line. He had never had a losing season as a professional coach. The Redskins were an average team, playing 500 ball for a dozen years, and they had not won a championship for almost 30 years. Once again, as he had a decade earlier in Green Bay, Lombardi turned things around, mostly through the force of his own personality and through the heroic efforts of a small group of talented Redskin players who understood and bought into the Lombardi vision. Together, they led the team to a respectable 7-5-2 record in the 1969 season. As it turned out, it was my father's last season. He was taken ill in the spring of 1970 and hospitalized in June with intestinal distress. The grim diagnosis? A virulent cancer of the colon. He died on September 3, 1970. And the football world, and a good piece of the larger world as well, felt the loss. Lombardi as Legend When he held his first news conference in Washington as the newly appointed head coach of the Redskins, there was considerable excitement in the nation's capital. The Redskins were not quite as hapless as the Packers had been ten years earlier, but they desperately needed help and, by all accounts, Lombardi was the man to give it to them. In Green Bay, as one sports writer reminded the world at that time, he was widely known as St. Vincent. What would Lombardi tell the 100 or so journalists who had assembled to hear his maiden D.C. press conference? Gentlemen, he began, it is not true that I can walk across the Potomac River, not even when it is frozen. When a group of old friends in Bergen County, New Jersey, began trying to arrange a Vince Lombardi day, they sought his counsel. I don't think Vince Lombardi is important enough to have a day set aside for him, my father wrote to the group, in a gentle effort to head off the event. 
Being considered a living legend was embarrassing as the devil, he told a Sports Illustrated writer. Nobody wants to be a legend, really, he told another writer. Well, I knew my father pretty well, and I think he actually had mixed feelings on the subject of being a legend. He enjoyed mixing with presidents and corporate leaders. He savored the opportunities that his belated fame had afforded him. He loved being associated with a hugely successful franchise and was willing to accept his share of the credit for that success. He had no fear of being found out and being revealed as a fraud, as so many celebrities later confessed to having felt when they first achieved success. He knew he was good. There was nothing to find out. I'm wrong just about as often as I'm right, he wrote modestly of himself. Sometimes he stressed how important luck was in the era of parity in professional football. Like a golfer who remembers each shot, recalled the late Steelers owner, Art Rooney, Lombardi remembered all the breaks of the season that went in his favor, fumbles recovered, punts that rolled out of bounds instead of into the end zone. Again, I take all this with a grain of salt. He never talked about luck with his players. He talked about preparation. And on more than one occasion, he used the parity argument to make exactly the opposite point. Luck doesn't favor the lucky. It favors the prepared team. In pro football, he once told an assistant, the balance of personnel is so even that the difference between success and failure is player control in every phase. So again we have a paradoxical, somewhat elusive figure at the heart of this book. My father made forceful statements, statements that he obviously believed, that were contradictory. He sometimes said less than he intended to say and puzzled his listeners. He sometimes said more than he intended to say and had to beat a quick retreat. For all of these reasons, we will have to proceed carefully as we attempt to tease his leadership model out of the things he said and did. Red Blake, the head coach at West Point who taught Lombardi much of what he knew about coaching football, once made an ear-grabbing statement about my father. Lombardi, Blake said, is a thoroughbred with a vile temper. Chapter 2. The Vince Lombardi Leadership Model At some point in the mid-1960s, my father began giving what I will call the speech. I have a red file folder full of variations on the speech. They are far more alike than they are different from each other. Of course, my father would tailor the beginning and end of the speech and sometimes insert some appropriate jokes and anecdotes to make the speech more relevant to a specific audience. But the core of the speech was more or less unchanged, from banquet hall to convention center to college auditorium. In the late 1960s, when social unrest was on the rise, he modified the speech considerably, doubling its length and giving it a more overtly political cast. But all of the basic building blocks from the original version of the speech were carried forward. All told, he must have given a version of the speech hundreds of times. My mother used to say, half in jest, that she had heard it thousands of times. 
In less formal settings, he would work from a half-dozen five-inch square photocopied sheets, with a combination of typed and written code phrases that moved him through the body of the speech. In speeches to large groups, he usually had a typed-out version of the speech on which he might make notes in advance. In all cases, he felt free to improvise, and he often did improvise, usually elaborating on his tried-and-true themes. This is another reason there are variations upon variations of the speech. This chapter begins with a representative version of the speech, which I've put together from the many versions in my file. I'll leave out the political modules that Lombardi inserted toward the end of his life, since these are somewhat dated and don't bear directly on the main themes of this book anyway. I'll use the title my father most often used, Leadership, since that was so much his passion and is the focus of this book. As we'll see, the speech contains the core of what I'll call the Lombardi leadership model. In the second half of the chapter, I'll present the essentials of that model, which serves as the framework for several of the chapters that follow. Leadership A year ago, in making a talk to a similar group in a similar situation, I had a difficult time in arriving at a method of approach, how to reach this intelligent audience. Then, finally, I arrived at the only subject through which I could conceivably contribute anything, my own experience of trampling grapes in my local vineyard, namely, football. I have been in football all my life, and I do not know whether I am particularly qualified to do much else except coach football. I can only say it is a great game, a game of great lessons, a game that has become a symbol of this country's best attributes, namely courage, stamina, and coordinated efficiency. It is a Spartan game and requires Spartan-like qualities in order to play it. By that, of course, I don't mean the Spartan tradition of leaving the weak to die. I mean instead the qualities of sacrifice, self-denial, dedication, and fearlessness. Football is a violent game. To play it any other way but violently would be imbecilic. But because of its violent nature, it demands a personal discipline seldom found in modern life. Football is more than the National Football League alone. Football is Red Grange, Jim Thorpe, and the many hundreds of other stars who have made this the great game that it is. Football is all of the thousands of high school and college boys who play it and the many millions more who watch it, either in person or on television. Regardless of what level it is played upon, high school, college, or the professional level, it has become a game that not only exemplifies this country's finest attributes, but more than that, it has the means and the power to provide mental and physical relaxation to the millions who watch it from the sidelines. I need no other authority than the great General MacArthur to prove my point, and I quote him. Competitive sports keeps alive in all of us a spirit of vitality and enterprise. It teaches the strong to know when they are weak, and the brave to face themselves when they are afraid. It teaches us to be proud and unbending in defeat, 
yet humble and gentle in victory. It teaches us to master ourselves before we attempt to master others. It teaches us to learn to laugh, yet never forget how to weep. It gives a predominance of courage over timidity. I sometimes wonder whether those of us who love football fully appreciate its great lessons. For example, that it is a game played by more than a million Americans, and yet a game uninhibited by racial or social barriers. It is a game that requires, in early season, exhaustive hard work to the point of drudgery. A game of team action, wherein the individual's reward is that total satisfaction that is returned by being part of the successful whole. A game that gives you 100% fun when you win and exacts 100% resolution when you lose. A game like war and also a game most like life, for it teaches that work, sacrifice, perseverance, competitive drive, selflessness, and respect for authority are the price one pays to achieve worthwhile goals. And it has larger implications. Today all of us are engaged in a struggle more fiercely contested and far more important to our future. It is the struggle for the hearts, the minds, and the souls of men. In this struggle there are no spectators, only players. It is a struggle that will test our courage, our strength, and our stamina. Only if we are physically, mentally, and spiritually fit will we win. We live in an age fit for heroes. No time has ever offered such perils or such prizes. Man can provide a full life for humanity, or he can destroy himself with the problems he has created. The test of this century will be whether man confuses the growth of wealth and power with the growth of spirit and character. If he does, he will be like some infant playing with matches who destroys the very house he would have inherited. You are the leaders of this country. I believe it is the obligation of our leaders to see that we are awakened to this need. Unless we can do something to get everyone in America moving in this direction, we may not be able to keep America strong. Calisthenics, exercise, and muscle toning are not the complete answer. There is also a need to develop a strong spirit of competitive interest throughout the nation. In other words, a strong body is only one half of the answer. We fail in our obligation if we do not also preserve the American zeal to be first and the will to win. American freedom, and I mean freedom, not license, could be lost and possibly succumb to the consequence of aggressive secularism and communism, unless the values underlying that freedom are thoroughly understood and embraced by our leaders. For decades, we as individuals have struggled to liberate ourselves from ancient tradition, congealed creeds, and despotic states. In this struggle, freedom was necessarily idealized against order, the new against the old and genius against discipline. Everything was done to strengthen the right of the individual and weaken the authority of the state and church. Maybe the battle was too completely won. Maybe we have too much freedom. Maybe we have so long ridiculed authority in the family, discipline in education, decency in conduct, and law in the state, that our freedom has brought us close to chaos. 
Maybe our leaders no longer understand the relationship between themselves and the people. That is, that the people want to be independent and dependent all at the same time. They want to assert themselves and yet at the same time be told what to do. Management is leadership. When management fails, it reflects a lack of leadership. All of you possess leadership ability. But leadership rests not only on outstanding ability. It also rests on commitment, loyalty, and pride. It rests on followers who are ready to accept guidance. Leadership is the ability to direct people and, more important, to have those people accept that direction. The educated man is the natural leader. He may not get all of his education in college. In fact, his inspiration may come from any place. If he studies the past, his country, his people, his ancestry, and the lessons of history, he is educated. I think you will agree that what is needed in the world today is not just engineers and scientists. What is needed, too, is people who will keep their heads in an emergency, no matter what the field. Leaders, in other words, who can meet intricate problems with wisdom and with courage. Leadership is not just one quality, but rather a blend of many qualities. And while no one individual possesses all of the talents that are needed for leadership, each man can develop a combination that can make him a leader. Contrary to the opinion of many, leaders are not born, they are made. And they are made by hard effort, which is the price we must all pay for success. We are not born equal. Rather, we are born unequal. The talented are no more responsible for their talent than the underprivileged are for their position. The measure of each is what he does. Our society, at the present time, seems to have sympathy only for the misfit, the ne'er-do-well, the maladjusted, the criminal, the loser. It is time to stand up for the doer, the achiever, the one who sets out to do something and does it, the one who recognizes the problems and opportunities at hand and deals with them, and is successful, and is not worrying about the failings of others the one who is constantly looking for more to do, the one who carries the work of the world on his shoulders, the leader. We will never create a good society, much less a great one, until individual excellence is respected and encouraged. To be a leader, you must be honest with yourself. You must know that as a leader, you are like everyone else, only more so. You must identify yourself with the group and back them up, even at the risk of displeasing your superiors. You must believe that the group wants, above all else, the leader's approval. Once this feeling prevails, productivity, discipline, and morale will all be high. In return, you must demand from the group cooperation to promote the goals of the corporation. As a leader, you must believe in teamwork through participation. As a result, your contacts with the group must be close and informal. You must be sensitive to the emotional needs and expectations of others. In return, the group's attitude toward the leader should be one of confidence infused with affection. And yet the leader must always walk the tightrope between the consent he must win and the control he must exert. 
Despite the need for teamwork and participation, the leader can never close the gap between himself and the group. If he does, he is no longer what he has to be. The leader is a lonely person. He must maintain a certain distance between himself and the members of the group. A leader does not exist in the abstract, but rather in terms of what he does in a specific situation. A leader is judged in terms of what others do to obtain the results that he is placed there to get. You, as a leader, must possess the quality of mental toughness. This is a difficult quality to explain, but in my opinion, this is the most important element in the character of the leader. Mental toughness is many things. It is humility. It is simplicity. The leader always remembers that simplicity is the sign of true greatness, and meekness the sign of true strength. Mental toughness is Spartanism, with all its qualities of self-denial, sacrifice, dedication, fearlessness, and love. Yes, love. Love is not necessarily liking. You do not need to like someone in order to love them. Love is loyalty. Love is teamwork. Love is respect for the dignity of an individual. Love is charity. The love I speak of is not detraction. A man who belittles another, who is not loyal, who speaks ill of another, is not a leader and does not belong in the top echelons of management. I'm not advocating that love is the answer to everything. I am not advocating a love that forces everyone to love everybody else. I am not saying that we must love the white man because he is white, or the black man because he is black, or the poor man because he is poor, or the enemy because he is the enemy, or the perverse because he is perverse. Rather, I am advocating a love for the human being. Any human being who just happens to be white, black, poor or rich, enemy or friend. Heart power is the strength of your company, of your organization, of America. Hate power is the weakness of the world. Mental toughness is also the perfectly disciplined will. The strength of your group is in your will, in the will of the leader. The difference between a successful man and others is not in the lack of strength, nor in the lack of knowledge, but rather in the lack of will. The real difference between men is in energy. It is in the strong will, the settled purpose, the invincible determination. But remember that the will is the character in action. If we would create something, we must be something. This is character. Character is higher than intellect. Character is the direct result of mental attitude. A man cannot dream himself into character. He must hammer and forge one for himself. He cannot copy someone else's qualities. He must develop his own character qualities to fit his own personality. We should remember, too, that there is only one kind of discipline, and that is the perfect discipline. As a leader, you must enforce and maintain that discipline. Otherwise, you will fail at your job. Leadership lies in sacrifice, self-denial, love, fearlessness, and humility.
and this is the distinction between great and little men. So, that's a version of the speech. It was last delivered in Dayton, Ohio, on June 22, 1970. A week later, my father entered a hospital in Washington, D.C. for treatment of excruciating stomach pains. He died three months later. Why should we pay attention to a speech that hasn't been heard in 30 years? I think there are a couple of reasons. First, there is a continuing fascination with Lombardi's life and the philosophy that directed that life. Many people, including me, believe that my father was an extraordinarily successful leader. They want to understand that success and perhaps emulate it in their own lives. For those people, the speech is a necessary starting point. Second, the speech was my father's best effort to summarize his views on leadership. He sharpened, distilled, and refined it over the course of several years. As a result, it is very quotable. In fact, it is the source of many of the quotes that are attributed to my father. There is a steady stream of books about Vince Lombardi, including several books of quotes. In most of these cases, the speech is cut up and interspersed with quotes from other sources. But to my mind, many of those quotes don't make much sense out of context. If we would create something, we must first be something. Even in the context of the speech, that requires some careful reflection. What is character in action? How does that relate to mental toughness? Again, the speech is a good starting point. But, for two reasons at least, it is only a starting point. Capturing Hearts The first reason, of course, was the purpose for which the speech was intended. It wasn't an exercise in logic and wasn't intended to be. When people hired Vince Lombardi to speak, they expected, and got, a highly emotional pitch, delivered with great passion. When my father spoke publicly, he grabbed for people's hearts, as well as their minds. He almost always got those hearts, too. His reputation preceded him, of course. People tended to take to heart what the legendary Vince Lombardi was telling them. And although he wasn't a polished speaker, he knew how to play to his own strengths. He was a highly physical performer, jabbing at the air with his extraordinarily long index finger, parking his hands on his hips and cocking his head for dramatic effect, and somehow turning his stocky build, gravelly voice, and New York accent into credibility builders. I mentioned the fact that my mother joked about hearing the speech thousands of times. She also said that no matter how often she heard it, it never failed to move her. Obviously, thousands of other people were equally moved. Given the speech's primary purpose, inspiring, motivating, capturing hearts, it's not surprising that it leaves a lot of questions unanswered. My father fudged the question as to whether a football coach had much to say to high-powered corporate leaders. He merely claimed to have learned a few things trampling grapes in a local vineyard. He claimed that football was like war and like life, but didn't go far beyond making those assertions. He made some bold imperative statements about honesty, performance, 
mental toughness, love, character, will, and discipline, but didn't give his audience much of a sense of how someone should act on the basis of those bold statements. Like all great speakers, in other words, he left his audience asking for more. In fact, many organizations asked him to come back repeatedly. Nobody seemed to mind that the speech didn't change much from year to year. They wanted inspiration, and Vince Lombardi gave it to them. Inspiration is essential, like air and food. But I think there is even more to be gotten out of my father's words and deeds. I think there is a Lombardi leadership model, which managers can use to position themselves and their organizations for success. A Thinker at Work The second reason the speech doesn't give us the complete picture is that my father wasn't the kind of person to spend weeks or months lining up his thoughts to make a bulletproof argument. That wasn't how he chose to spend his time. He was a thoughtful person with a quick mind, trained mostly by Jesuits. He thought and worried about deep issues, including the sometimes conflicting demands that were imposed upon him by his faith and his career. Faith called upon him to be patient and forgiving. Football required him to be impatient, tough, and relentless. He was fond of the classics and enjoyed playing Latin word games with his old parochial school buddies. He read voraciously. As I see it, this is all evidence of an active and fertile brain. But it would be a stretch to call him an intellectual. He was far too impatient to count angels on the head of a pin. And, more important, he was paid to lead, rather than to think about leading. He was paid to deliver results. So it was unusual for him to sit around and come up with intellectual arguments as to why things should or shouldn't be done in a certain way. Far more often he figured out how to move people from here to there, and then he moved them. And although he cast a long shadow and left big footprints, he didn't write a lot down. Unfortunately, he didn't leave us a road map. But the lack of a road map doesn't mean that there was no system to my father's particular brand of leadership. In fact, there was a model that consistently guided his activities and made him the leader that he was. And if we look at the many clues he left us, and are willing to read between the lines when necessary, I believe we can puzzle out the essentials of that model. The Lombardi Leadership Model The model began with self-knowledge. Consider the following. One of our goals in life has to be to know ourselves, as the ancient Greek axiom put it. It is the first step toward self-improvement. My father had a strong sense of self. He gave a great deal of thought to issues like purpose, truth, faith, humility, and compassion. He cultivated these qualities in himself and tried to live them. Lombardi Rule Number One Know Yourself This is wisdom that is as old as mankind. You can't improve on something you don't understand. Lombardi Rule Number Two Build Your Character Character is not inherited. It is something that can be, and needs to be, built and disciplined. Lombardi Rule Number Three Earn Your Stripes 
leaders earn the right to lead. How? They manifest character and integrity, and they get results. Lombardi Rule Number 4. Think Big Picture. The big picture is your roadmap and rudder. It can't change in response to minor setbacks. But it must change as the competitive environment changes. Lombardi Rule Number 5. Leaders are made, not born. Leadership grows out of self-knowledge, character and integrity, competence, and a comprehensive vision. When these building blocks are in place, the leader can lead. Of course, the speech and my father's various other spoken and written commentaries touch upon many more leadership-related subjects, including, for example, the relationships between teaching, coaching, selling, and leading, how winning organizations are built, how people and organizations can be inspired and motivated for success, and the prizes and pitfalls inherent in winning. In later chapters of the book, I lay out perspectives, my father's and my own, on these and other leadership-related topics. Chapter 3. Self-Knowledge. The First Step to Leadership. After Vince Lombardi stepped down as head coach of the Packers, he began looking for something to do with the next phase of his life. He was in his late fifties, vigorous and apparently healthy, and still brimming over with energy. In addition, he was now a national celebrity. Not surprisingly, some Wisconsin power brokers approached him about running for either the U.S. Senate or the governorship of the state. I gave it some thought. I wasn't sure my nature was right for it. You know, I'm pretty sensitive to what they say about me in the sports pages. I wasn't sure I could take the beating you get in public life. At the same time, I liked to think I could make a contribution to people. And then I was asked to go with a lot of big corporations, and that tempted me too. You like to think you can rise to a new challenge. But I wasn't sure about those things. Ultimately, of course, my father decided against running for elective office, and he didn't associate himself with the business community either. I use this quote to illustrate that my father made decisions based on his understanding of himself. He knew something about what he didn't like, getting beat up in the press. He knew something that he did like, making a contribution. And he seems to have had an understanding that the corporate arena might not have been the right place for him. Lombardi Rule Number One Leadership Begins with Self-Knowledge Life decisions can be good decisions only if they hit your own personal bedrock. The Lombardi leadership model begins with self-knowledge, which I will define as an awareness and a wisdom about your own character and potential, acquired through experience. The opposite of self-knowledge is ignorance, misconception, and misunderstanding. Self-knowledge is important because leaders bring their attitudes, perceptions, prejudices, and opinions to their communications, relationships, and interactions with others. We see life, people, and events through the lens of our thoughts about them. We see what we expect to see, hear what we expect to hear, and think the way we expect to think. We comprehend the world not as it is, but as we are. 
Lombardi Rule Number 2. Self-knowledge comes only from self-discovery. A journey of a thousand miles, said the ancient Chinese proverb, begins with one step. Take a step. Self-knowledge is a condition, an end point, although always a moving target, and a critical prerequisite to character and integrity. How do we get there? We achieve self-knowledge through a process of self-discovery. This process involves asking questions like the following. What am I about? Where is my faith? Where is my spark? What is my life worth? When we succeed in answering these and similar questions about ourselves, we will understand better the values and principles we believe in, and also the existing strengths we have to build upon. These are the roots of maturity, effective priority-setting, and good decision-making. As my father put it, emotional maturity is a preface for a sense of values. The immature person exaggerates what is not important. The process of self-discovery and the accumulation of self-knowledge creates an integrated identity, or personality, apart from the workplace, and I believe that this identity is critically important. Why? Because when our identities are completely intertwined with our work lives, we lose our independence. We limit our access to our creativity. If we have no identity separate from our work identity, we don't take risks. If I lose my job, I lose everything. We become less passionate, and even worse, more cynical. If that's not persuasive, try this. As a leader, you can't build a team, a department, or a company that is a whole lot different from who you are. The inventor can't take himself out of the invention, even if he or she wants to. A team expresses a coach's personality and its own personality, and this doesn't change from week to week. Well, that quote begs the question, who are you? What are your principles and values, and what is your purpose? Purpose can't be defined as what you do. It's who and what you are. So, what are you? Without self-discovery and self-knowledge, you don't know. Lombardi Rule Number 3. You can't build a team that's different from yourself. So be honest with yourself and honest with your team. The successful man is himself, my father used to say. To be successful, you've got to be honest with yourself. People have an unerring nose for dishonesty, fraud, pretense, and posturing. You can't fake it. When faced with a crisis, a leader must draw on resources from within to meet the challenge. This is tough to do if you don't know your inner strengths. So it is vitally important that you determine your principles, who you are, what you stand for, and what your strengths and weaknesses are. In other words, self-knowledge. That means that you have to discover and work with your own model. You can't be Vince Lombardi, nor should you try. You should be you. Lombardi Rule Number 4. Find your own tools. Different people get places by different paths. 
Self-discovery is nothing if not personal. When faced with your next crisis as a leader, you aren't going to have time to do an attitude check. You are going to have to act instinctively and correctly. You bring yourself to this state through continuous renewal. Each day you engage in some part of your discipline, so that over time you begin to internalize your purpose, the principles and values you believe in, as well as the leadership qualities and characteristics outlined in a book like this. The end game of this search for self-knowledge is to become a person with purpose. Purpose can be defined as the ideal that we keep in front of ourselves to direct our plans and actions. It is the point toward which our efforts are directed. Are we born with purpose? Do we discover our purpose? If we discover our purpose, do we choose it? In varying degrees, all three are true. Purpose is a choice, but it can also be an intuition. It can be answering an inner voice. It can be a yearning. A vocation can be a purpose. A career cannot. Vocation comes from the Latin verb vocare, to call. A vocation calls to you, is your calling. Career is derived from the French word for racetrack, which brings to mind the image of horses racing in endless circles, getting nowhere. The vocation or the purpose endures. The career most likely goes through dramatic evolutions, sometimes forced upon you by outside circumstances. Vince Lombardi was both lucky and unlucky when it came to finding his purpose in life. Coming out of college, he had no idea what he wanted to do next. He tried law school and hated that. He worked for a collection company. Then he got a call from a former college teammate, asking him to come and help coach football at St. Cecilia's High School in Inglewood, New Jersey. It was a call that turned out to be a calling. I'm not better nor less than the next man, but the thing about me is that I always knew what my acts would mean. I was lucky. I fell into football, really. I had some early success at coaching in high school. I knew then, as a young man, the path I had to follow. Now, the earlier in life you know your track, the better off you are. I was lucky and found a singleness of purpose early on. What my father went through was a process of self-discovery, not only at law school and the collection agency, but also at St. Cecilia's and his subsequent places of employment. He learned something from the paths he didn't follow, and he also learned something about a path that seemed to be open to him, coaching football. But I think he was stretching it a bit to say that he found a singleness of purpose early on. In fact, when he took that first job at Saints, he took it mainly as a teacher, rather than a football coach. He enrolled in courses at a nearby college to make himself a better teacher, and he tried to sharpen his skills in the classroom throughout his eight-year stint at St. Cecilia's. Throughout his life, it seemed to me, Lombardi struggled with the distinction between coaching and teaching. He often blurred the distinction between the two, and it's likely that much of his success in later life came from finding a way to integrate those two interests into a single purpose. When he strayed from that purpose, 
which he did when he stepped down as the Packers head coach after the 1968 season, the self-discovery process began again. Reflecting on why he got back into coaching a year later, he describes in poignant detail how he felt the day when it hit him that, for the first time in thirty years, he was no longer a football coach. In other words, he described the plight of somebody who has left his purpose behind. It was absolutely the best off-season I'd ever had, until exactly July 15th, the day they came back to start practice. My God, one minute I'm going to play golf that afternoon, and the next thing I know I'm canceling the round. I find I can't stand to stay away from practice, and I'm down there trying to stay off to the side and kind of aloof so I wouldn't be in the way. But I couldn't force myself to do anything but go down and watch practice. And of course I knew right then that I had made a horrible mistake by leaving coaching. Lombardi Rule Number 5. Link Goals to Purpose. A goal without a purpose is like a boat without anchor. Most motivational speakers and authors, myself included, place special emphasis on goals. Without personal and professional goals, I tell my audiences, we wither and we die. But goals don't float in space. They must be anchored in the bedrock of conviction, meaning, and purpose. Because without this foundation of purpose, we are all too likely to throw our goals overboard at the first sign of adversity. Without purpose, we fail to connect with our core, our driving force. Without purpose, life is soft and always in danger of falling apart. Without purpose, we can't use the tools that God has given us. And without purpose, we don't have a way to make a difference. And by this I mean a difference through and to others. It's an interesting paradox. To find purpose, you go within yourself. Your life's purpose is intimate, proprietary. To realize purpose, you must go outside yourself. You create purpose on purpose. Purpose becomes real is realized only when it goes public. How do we discover purpose? In part, a sense of purpose grows out of the questions we ask ourselves. For example, am I going to allow my life to be governed by daily activities, or do I choose to live my life in accordance with noble principles? True, the car needs to be inspected, the baby needs to be changed, the laundry is piling up, and the grass needs mowing. But do these day-to-day -day needs always have to shove higher-order concerns to one side? Always? In other words, do I have an overriding purpose in my life, a purpose that is vivid and precise, a purpose I am committed to, a purpose that underscores everything I do? Or am I avoiding commitments in my life by filling my life with daily activities, in a celebrated line from their book, First Things First, authors Stephen R. Covey, A. Roger Merrill, and Rebecca R. Merrill make the case that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. We can identify the main thing only by asking good questions and giving ourselves the quiet time necessary to seek the answers. For example, 
What do I do well? What do I so love to do that, when I'm doing it, I lose all track of time? What do I do that's urgent, but not important? Does that leave me time for the things that are important, but not urgent? What's the first thing I'd change about my life? What's the last thing I'd change about my life? Lombardi Rule Number Six Ask yourself tough questions. Purpose and self knowledge come from the answers to tough questions and the time to answer them. How do you want to be remembered? What will outlast you? What will continue after you are gone? On the day you are cremated or buried, what's going to be happening at your house? When your spouse, your kids and their spouses, your grandchildren and your friends and business associates begin to loosen up and speak candidly about you, what will they say? What would you like them to say? That you had character? Or that you were a character? That you were a person of courage and discipline? That you were a worrywart? That you had a sense of humor and were lovable, compassionate, and caring? Imagine that you are looking around the room as these discussions are going on. These are the people who were closest to you in life. If you had any influence while you were alive, it surely ought to show up in this crowd. What attitudes, behaviors, and values can you take credit for? What is your legacy? Is it what you want it to be? The Art of Bending People People sniff out phoniness. Most people can tell the difference between what is real and what is not. They know when someone is trying to be something that does not ring true. Self-discovery leads to self-knowledge and self-knowledge ought to protect us from making inauthentic moves as leaders. In other words, we ought to know where our strengths lie and play to those strengths. If it takes a spark to lead others, where is your spark? Some people lead almost entirely through others. Jim Lee Howell, the Giants coach who rode herd on his assistants Vince Lombardi and Tom Landry, used to joke that his main job as head coach was to make sure that the footballs were inflated to the right pressure. This was exaggeration to a purpose, of course. Howell was very much in charge of that team. But he was also acknowledging that he did not have the personalities of his two assistants. Nor did he need to. My father was at the other end of the spectrum. He was practically bursting with whatever you want to call it. Intensity, magnetism, Charisma. His eyes danced and sparkled. He gave off a sort of electricity, a force that made you want to be near him, but also gave you fair warning to stay on your toes. Lombardi Rule Number Seven Know Your Spark. In your quest for self knowledge, focus on how you can authentically lead people. Vince Lombardi's charisma was, to some extent, a God given gift a way of presenting himself to the world that came naturally to him and that was energizing and compelling to most people who encountered him. It was also the result of his absolute intensity and commitment, a subject to which I'll return in Chapter 5. 
But to an important extent, his charisma was also the result of years of thought about his strengths and weaknesses, and the careful implementation of strategies designed to play to his strengths and minimize his weaknesses. In other words, self-knowledge. He knew himself well enough to know whom to bend and how to bend them. Linking Purpose and Vocation I worry that some readers may feel that this chapter can be of benefit mainly to young people, or people who haven't taken on the trappings and burdens of being an adult, a parent, and a professional. Most people I know above a certain age have some version of a first and second mortgage, car loans, credit card payments, and a couple of teenagers who are anxious to go to an expensive private college. These people may hear the age-old saying, find something you love to do, then find a way to make a living doing it, and say, yeah, well, go tell that to the bank. Lombardi Rule Number 8 See if you see daylight between purpose and career. Then figure out if that's a good thing, a bad thing, or neutral. I'm sympathetic, having come face to face with those challenges myself throughout my career. But I think that line of reasoning confuses purpose and career. Sometimes a purpose and a career are antithetical, and something has to give. I don't think one could be, for example, both a priest and a bank robber for very long. But sometimes a particular purpose can be squared with a particular career. It may take nothing more than re-examining your career and discovering a purpose you have overlooked in the past. It might be helpful to recall the words of Ralph Waldo Emerson. What is my job on the planet? What is it that needs doing, that I know something about, that probably won't happen unless I take responsibility for it? You know, my father once said to me, the Lord has a funny way of putting you in the right place. I agree. And I also believe that, as the New England colonists used to put it, the Lord helps those who help themselves. Those who make the daily effort to discover themselves, improve themselves, and prepare themselves for new and higher kinds of leadership. Chapter 4 Character and Integrity Self-discovery leads to self-knowledge. In the Lombardi leadership model, we build on self-knowledge to develop character. Combined with good habits and competence, this creates the foundation for leadership. My father spoke often of character. I've already referred to his pre-seminary training, his rigorous education at the hands of Fordham's Jesuits, and his sustained immersion in what might be called the secular religion of West Point where a code of duty and honor prevailed. I think this sequence of educational experiences, consistently focused on values, made him into the man he was. I also think it made him unusually aware of how one goes about building character. This awareness is the product and the continuation of the process described in Chapter 3. In this chapter, we take that analysis one step further. How does one prepare to take one's self-knowledge and life's purpose out into the world? I would say, and I think my father would have said, that one first must build one's character. 
The word character is derived from older words that mean engraved and inscribed. I like reflecting on these etymological roots because they imply something important. Character, then, is who you are. It is written, inscribed, and engraved all over you. Everyone has a character, but not all of us are of character. Character is founded on unchanging principles. It is your underlying core. It has unspoken power. It is solid and resolute, and it doesn't blink. We know character when we see it, but we're not sure how to teach it. Character is learned from the people around us, our heroes and our role models. Vince Lombardi often spoke of his role models, his father, Harry, who had the letters of the words work and play tattooed on his hands finger by finger. His college coach, Jim Crowley, a member of the famed Four Horsemen of Notre Dame. The Jesuit priests who taught him at Fordham. West Point's Red Blake, and NFL legends George Hallis and Paul Brown. Lombardi said that Red Blake was the greatest coach he'd ever known. Whatever success I have must be attributed to the old man. He molded my methods and my whole approach to the game. Lombardi Rule Number One Write Your Character Find ways to write in your own concrete before it sets up. Heroes are important, not only because they demonstrate important qualities of character, but also because they compel us to examine how we are conducting our own lives. We hold ourselves up to the examples, images, and pictures that our heroes present to us. We try to be like them. Sometimes, as we acquire wisdom, we figure out why we want to be different from them. I think it is also time in this country to cheer for, to stand up for, to slap on the back the doer, the achiever, a man who recognizes a problem and does something about it, the winner. There are other techniques for writing your character, including seeking truth, finding and keeping faith, practicing humility, and showing respect and compassion for others. These are all described in this chapter. None is easy to adopt. All are important for leadership. Always seek the truth. Truth is best described by its opposites, lying, hypocrisy, and deception. Truth is the foundation of character and therefore is absolutely necessary for a leader. Without truth, there can be no trust. And if they don't trust you, you can't lead them. There are two aspects of truth that a leader needs to be concerned with. First, what is true? And second, where is truth? For people with backgrounds like my father's and my own, there are objective moral principles that constitute what is true. Customs and social mores may change, but fundamental truths transcend time and cultures. And on a personal level, right and wrong are constant and unchanging. What is right today was right yesterday and will be right tomorrow. Fundamental basic truths arise out of personal reflection and experience. 
they illuminate and reinforce purpose. A person who is grounded in truth does the right thing every time. When you are guided by the truth, you are the same person in private as you are in public. Looked at from the other end of the telescope, you know that what you do in private matters. Any talk of being able to compartmentalize your life so that what you do in private has no bearing on your public life is a fiction. You are no better than your principles. Oscar Wilde once said, I forget that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character, and that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber one has some day to cry aloud on the housetops. Lombardi Rule Number 2. Find the truth for your purpose. A true truth is one that works in all aspects of your life. What do you get with a person whose purpose is grounded in the truth? You get a person much like my father. No hidden meanings, no dealing in the shadows, no backstabbing. I never tell a football team anything that I don't absolutely believe myself. I always tell them the truth. I can't even try to deceive them because I know they'd know. I'd know, so they'd know. Leaders understand that in any given circumstance, they may not be seeing or hearing the truth. As I noted earlier, we bring our prejudices, our preconditioning, and our own particular filters to our everyday interactions with others. The leader understands and deals with this problem. Leaders understand that the greatest obstacle to finding truth is the illusion that they already possess it. Leaders must be both analytical and skeptical. They must ask, constantly, where is the truth? Put yourself through this screen. Do you value the truth? Are the people around you eager to tell you the truth? If not, why not? Do you believe that truth is discovered and error exposed only through discussion and disagreement? Leaders can't get the truth unless there is a climate of openness, dignity, and mutual respect. Do you give your people all the information they need in order to do their work? Or do you parcel out the truth on the basis of your perception of a need-to-know? Sometimes, in our search for the truth, we work against ourselves. Something happens that provokes or stimulates us, and we ask ourselves, have I seen anything like this before? We scan our past experiences as we seek to characterize the present stimulus. Then we react, out of habit, pretty much the same way we reacted the last time we think we faced a similar experience. Oftentimes the mechanism we developed to handle and cope with a situation, while satisfactory in the past, is inappropriate for the current circumstance. So, what happened in the past influences how we act in the present, often to our detriment. For a leader, real power arises in that moment between the stimulus and the habitual reaction. By seizing that moment, by choosing to act rather than react, the leader can affect real and positive change. Lombardi Rule number 3. Act, don't react. Seize the initiative by seeing things for what they are. 
The truth of experience is necessary for a leader. It is a wonderful teacher, but only if you reflect upon and learn from your experience. Unless you do that, your reaction is only repetitive motion. Leaders who don't learn from their experience may recreate some successes, but they are just as likely to make the same mistakes over and over again. The worst case? The leader who is locked into bad habits, resists change, seeks comfort in repetition, and applies old solutions to new problems. Coach Lombardi valued experience, and he studied the past to discover the truth. As he prepared to play a particular opponent, he would study films of previous games the Packers had played against that team, as well as the film of that team's game against a third team the previous week. This was a good and necessary investment for putting the game plan together. But Lombardi and his staff also knew that this week's opponent was changed from what they were the last time the Packers played them. For that matter, the Packers were also a changed team. Relying too heavily on past experience was dangerous. What had worked in the past against this opposing team might not work this week, because the other team's coaches were also studying the films, making adjustments, and seeking to create some sort of edge for their players. Lombardi Rule Number 4. Study the past. Live in the present. Find yesterday's lessons, but assume that today is new. So while he took care to study the past, Lombardi made sure that his team functioned in the present. In pro football, he knew full well that living in the past was a prescription for defeat. The championship team that dwelled on last year's championship was unlikely to repeat that achievement. At the beginning of each post-championship season, therefore, Lombardi squelched all talk about how the Packers were defending last year's title. Each season, he insisted, each game was a new and separate challenge. Each team would have to make its own mark. Each player would have to earn his position again no matter how well he had played the previous year. Lombardi Rule number 5. Have faith. There is no more reliable comfort and source of strength. I've already touched upon my father's deep religious faith. Prayer and worship were important elements in his discipline of continuous renewal. He spent most of his high school years in the seminary, studying for the priesthood. He attended daily Mass, and he always carried his rosary. His was not a superficial faith or a faith of convenience. It was a far-reaching commitment that touched upon all aspects of his life. On the inside of Lombardi's championship rings, for example, are two etchings. One is the Sacred Heart of Jesus. The other is the Blessed Mother holding the infant Jesus. I can recall a number of times being in my father's hotel suite on a Sunday morning before a road game. Looking into his bedroom, I would see him on his knees, saying the rosary. We don't pray to win. We pray to play the best we can and to keep us free from injury. And the prayer we say after the game is one of thanksgiving. Practice Humility Humility as I want to use the word, is the quality of being unpretending. 
the humility Lombardi is talking about is giving credit where credit is due. If you did it, take the credit. If you had help, recognize those who helped you. For a leader, humility is the recognition that you get results only through the efforts of others. It is yet another way of embodying truth and reinforcing character. There are two senses in which humility bears on leadership. The first is simply an understanding that even the most powerful of leaders is only a bit player on the larger stage of life. Keep in mind that there are laws, independent of man's consent, ruling over reality, over nature, over man too, whether he be willing to recognize them or not, to which we must bow, unless we think we can rule ourselves independently of the rest of nature. Egoism, in other words, must be defeated in self. The egoist is never happy. Like most coaches, Vince Lombardi tried to control all the variables that might affect the outcome of a game. In that spirit, before the beginning of the 1967 season, he had heating coils installed underneath the turf at Lambeau Field, where the Packers played their home games. His plan was to turn on the coils when the Wisconsin winter turned frigid thereby keeping the turf pliant and giving the Packers good footing. At the end of that 1967 season, the Packers played the NFC Championship game in Wisconsin against the Dallas Cowboys. Lombardi had been warned by the weathermen that it was going to be cold, and he ordered the heating coils turned on for the first time. What he wasn't told was how cold it was going to be. The temperature plunged to 13 degrees below zero and the struggling heating coils gave up. By the second half, the entire field was a sheet of ice. The game achieved immortality as the Ice Bowl, and once again, my father got the opportunity to ponder the implications of hubris. Show Compassion We are our brother's keeper. I don't give a damn what people say. If people can't find work, whether it's their fault or not, you've got to help them and house them properly and try to get rid of the conditions that have held them back. The process of building character begins within. But, like purpose, described in the previous chapter, it eventually must find its home in the larger world of people. Things like character and integrity don't matter in a universe of one. So eventually you take your character out into the world, where your willingness and ability to show respect for others become critically important. Recognizing the spark of divinity that exists in each one of us is crucial to the emergence of leadership. Searching out that spark, even in the most unlikely places, is the task of the leader. Leadership is love. Everybody can like somebody's strengths and somebody's good looks, but can you like somebody's weaknesses? Can you accept him for his inabilities? That's what we have to do. That's what love is. It's not just the good things. One thing that gives me enormous pride was my father's complete lack of prejudice and bigotry. If you could play football, the color of your skin was immaterial. The same was true if you couldn't play football, of course. And this may come as a surprise to those who think of my father as a rigid, moralistic reactionary. Your sexual preference didn't matter either. 
What mattered to him was what kind of person you were. In my father's day, the most visible kind of prejudice was racial prejudice. It's more than a little shocking to look back to the state of race relations when my father finally got his chance to lead an organization. He came to the Packers already acutely sensitive to the insidiousness and the consequences of prejudice. Throughout his childhood and into his college days, he was frequently called a WAP. While a member of the Fordham football team, he was suspended by the college's president for fighting in the locker room. The cause of the fight? One of his football teammates suggested that Lombardi stand next to a third teammate so that everyone could see who was darker. That was enough to get my father going. Both my father and his tormentor wound up in the infirmary. Vince Lombardi was convinced, briefly, that it was the end of his football career. Of course, he survived the suspension and went on to pursue his teaching and coaching careers. But, as head coaching jobs came and went, he became convinced that he was still suffering for being swarthy, ethnic, and Catholic. He felt that people whose names ended in vowels, like his own, were far less likely to get the highly visible and prestigious jobs in football. Whatever the reasons, the fact that I did not get the coaching opportunities I felt I deserved motivated me greatly. In training camp, he assigned roommates alphabetically, deliberately ignoring racial considerations. This was the first time an NFL team had done so. When a restaurant in North Carolina, site of a preseason game in 1959, made the Packers four African-American players enter and leave by the back door, Lombardi made the rest of the team do the same. After those same four African-American players were forced to sleep in separate accommodations from the white players' lodgings, my father took them aside as the team was climbing onto the bus and told them, I'll never, absolutely never, put you guys in this situation again. If it means we play no games down here, that's the way it will be. I've devoted several pages to this aspect of my father's character, in large part because I'm proud of it. My father helped change the way things worked. In 1950, there were mainly token blacks in pro football. By 1970, a third of the players in the NFL were African American. Today, that number is around 60%. My father helped make that enormous and positive transition possible. And the impact of the transition was felt far beyond football. At the risk of stating the obvious, what happens when millions of Americans tune in every week during the football season to watch a thrilling game being played valiantly and expertly by men of all colors? Prejudice and ignorance go down. Tolerance goes up. But I've also cited my father's race relations record here because I think it has profound implications for managers in all kinds of circumstances. The leadership benefits of color blindness are certainly a piece of it. Unlike some pro teams, the Packers never experienced significant racial tensions of any kind. In fact, a July 1968 Sports Illustrated article singled out the Packers as a model for the rest of the league when it came to race relations. Equally important, though, are the motivational benefits. We respect everybody on this team, 
People get ahead on the basis of what they know and what they can do on the field. We don't permit factions, politics, or cliques to get in the way of doing business. If there's a problem resulting from perceived differences among groups, we solve that problem by getting it out in the open immediately. Maybe to some readers, especially young ones, this all sounds like yesterday's newspaper headlines. Isn't discrimination based on race a thing of the past? My answer would be, yes, from a legal standpoint. But I don't believe we've overcome four centuries of racial abuse and prejudice in four decades. Those vestigial poisons are still lurking in the corners of many organizations, just waiting for the opportunity to erupt. Looking more broadly, are you sure that your organization doesn't discriminate against women, gays, older people, or handicapped people? As a leader, are you willing to make the kind of strong statements my father made about loving people who are out of the organizational mainstream? That's not easy in a culture in which we pride ourselves on being professional and with it. Lombardi Rule Number 7 Search Out and destroy prejudice. Be the person who makes more people welcome and productive. What about the other ways we group and slight each other and show a lack of respect for each other? In many human cultures with relatively few individuals and in small organizations, for example, the newcomer is ostracized, isolated, and subjected to abuse of one kind or another. At college, it's the freshman. At training camp, it's the rookie. My father always worked to counter this negative human instinct. He insisted that the rookies be called first-year men, so that they would feel a part of the team. My father frequently talked to his audiences about the importance of something he called love. He spoke of love with obvious urgency, and maybe an extra measure of emphasis as if he hoped it could stand in for a group of ideas and principles that don't really lend themselves well to description. Love is the respect for the dignity of an individual. Love is charity. The love I speak of is not detraction. A man who belittles another, who is not charitable to another, who is not loyal, who speaks ill of another, is not a leader, and does not belong in the top management echelon. This kind of talk confused some of his audiences. That confusion is pretty easy to understand. When we hear the word love, we often associate it with romantic love. When we hear Jesus' prescription to love one another, we accept that readily. But when Vince Lombardi says the same thing, we get a little uncomfortable. What's a rough, tough football coach doing talking about soft and unexpected things like love? I think the word he was searching for was compassion. It means, literally, suffering together, and generally implies a desire on the part of the compassionate person to help in some way. The opposite of compassion is apathy, a non-feeling, an emotional indifference. A person who lives in a state of apathy exists on the lowest rung of humanity. In fact, he or she embodies inhumanity. Compassionate people care for one another in the knowledge that we are truly more alike than we are different. We come from the same source, 
which is the source of all life. We all breathe the same air, occupy the same small corner of a relatively small galaxy. We all want more or less the same things out of life, variations upon human happiness. And we're all going to meet the same fate, ultimately. As the Italians say, after death, all men smell the same. Don't we owe each other some compassion? If you didn't immediately say yes to that last question, here's a slightly more self-interested way of stating the same argument. If I am worthwhile and lovable, then so is everyone else I come in contact with. If they are not lovable and worthwhile, then neither am I. Lombardi Rule Number 8 Cultivate Compassion We owe each other empathy. Heart power is the strength of the world. When you're talking about romantic love, it's probably fair enough to expect love to just happen. But compassion doesn't just happen. Like the other leadership qualities discussed in this chapter, compassion must be nurtured and developed. Heart power is the strength of this world, my father used to tell his audiences, and hate power is the weakness of the world. In order to create an organization of character and integrity, you have to lead with compassion, with heart power, and you have to create an environment in which the people you are leading can show compassion for each other. Chapter 5. Developing Winning Habits This is a chapter about good habits. Habits are those behaviors that get us through the routines of the day and more or less prompt themselves without conscious thought on our part. It is our habits, the manifestation of our thoughts and beliefs, that distinguish us from one another. It seems as though the second half of a man's life, Dostoevsky once wrote, is made up of nothing but the habits he had accumulated during the first half. My father had some pretty strong feelings about what it takes to instill good habits in an organization. You teach discipline by doing something over and over, by repetition and rote, especially in a game like football when you have very little time to decide what you are going to do. So what you do is react almost instinctively, naturally. You have done it so many times over and over and over again. Where do habits come from? To answer this question, we'll have to back up a few steps. Through the qualities described in previous chapters, we clarify our purpose and write our character. A fundamental building block of character is a system of beliefs. Belief is your conviction that something is true, and you are in the belief business. It is the quality of your beliefs. This is the kind of person I am that determines your habits, which in turn make up your character. Beliefs are formed by our self-talk. We constantly engage in self-talk. When someone is talking to you, you are talking to yourself three times as fast, judging and prejudging your every action. When the conversation stops, your self-talk speeds up to six times the speed of conversation. With this self-talk, you are constantly evaluating what is going on around you in a positive or negative manner. 
Your focus is not on what is actually happening to you, but on what you think is happening to you. Over time, this self-talk accumulates into belief, a positive or negative opinion of yourself and your circumstances. It is this internal picture and opinion, positive or negative, that determines your thoughts, actions, habits, and ultimately your character. Of course, beliefs are only as good as the self-talk from which they are derived. Garbage in, garbage out, as they say in the computer world. But good or bad, they become the basis for action. Lombardi Rule number 1. Own your habits. Search out and identify your beliefs and the habits that grow out of them. Lombardi was acutely aware of this self-talk-belief-habit connection, and he was constantly trying to influence his players' self-talk. Herb Adderley, the Packers' all-pro cornerback, recalls Lombardi talking to him after a game against the Chicago Bears. You just played the best game I've ever seen a cornerback play, my father told him. This game was on national television. I'm sure the people who saw the game feel the same way. Keep this in mind, that each time you go out on the field, you say to yourself, I want these people, when they leave here, to say to themselves that they saw the best cornerback they have ever seen. Lombardi Rule number 2. Use your courage. When necessary, pick flight, but otherwise be brave. Fight. It's very common for people, even leaders, to fall into a vicious cycle of fear. They exaggerate the danger ahead, which increases their level of fear, which in turn inflates the imagined danger still further. But resolute leaders find ways out of this trap. They acknowledge that, yes, they've screwed up before, and they may well screw up again, and they may in fact screw up this time. But they plunge ahead. Why? Because their vision of what lies on the other side of the danger is big enough, vivid enough, and compelling enough to justify the effort. The desire for the reward overwhelms the human instinct to quit and compromise, to take the safe route. In Chapter 4, I referred to the Ice Bowl, the 1967 championship game between the Packers and the Cowboys, during which my father's prized heating coils under the playing surface failed and the field turned into an ice-skating rink. It wasn't just the weather and the failed technology that made that day memorable, of course. The Packers desperately needed a win against their arch-rival to have a shot at winning three championships in a row. From the outset, the pressure was enormous. The game itself was a seesaw battle, complicated by the deterioration of the playing surface and the bone-numbing cold. Up in the broadcast booth, former giant and then-CBS color commentator Frank Gifford casually tossed off the line of the day. I think I'll take another bite of my coffee. Down on the field, as the closing seconds of the fourth quarter ticked away, the Packers were down by three points, 17-14. to 14. They then played inspired football, driving the ball down the length of the field to the Cowboys' one-yard line. But now only 20 seconds remained in regulation time. Bart Starr, who had already quarterbacked a masterful game, 
called timeout, and came to the sideline to confer with Coach Lombardi. The smart thing, the safe thing to do at that point, was to kick a field goal and try to win the game in overtime. But that wasn't good enough. Instead of playing it safe, Lombardi and Starr decided to try to win the game in the final seconds with a quarterback sneak by Starr. It would be all or nothing. The entire stadium held their breath as Starr took the ball and aimed for the goal line. The bold stroke paid off as Starr crossed the goal line, giving the Packers a 20-17 victory. When questioned later on the call, my father first gave a cautious answer. We went for a touchdown instead of a field goal, he declared, because I didn't want all those freezing people up in the stands to have to sit through a sudden death. The reporters weren't satisfied with this and pressed Lombardi. If you can't run the ball in there in a moment of crisis like that, he said flatly, then, mister, you don't deserve to win. Those decisions don't come from the mind, he concluded. They come from the gut. Leaders can't avoid stress, fear, pain, and pressure. The pain of realizing you're not in control, admitting you were wrong, letting go of a long and dearly held belief. Or the fear and stress of having to make a decision without having as much information as you would like to have. These come with the territory of leadership. In fact, there are things affecting your business that you, as the leader, should be afraid of. Organizational fear, as opposed to individual fear, is good. It's a great motivator. You can't be courageous without fear. Again, I'm not talking about the personal fear that debilitates you, that stifles your creativity and clouds your intuition. I'm talking about the corporate pressure that motivates you. Without that kind of stress, you're probably doing mediocre work. Ideally, this type of thinking becomes a habit for the organization. At the least, it becomes a habit for the leader. My father was diagnosed with cancer on Memorial Day weekend, 1970. He died three months later. At 57 years of age and at the pinnacle of his career and his profession, he was stunned to learn that the end was now so near. And yet he accepted his fate with courage and grace. I'm not afraid to die. I'm not afraid to meet my God now, he told a priest who was also a lifelong friend. But what I do regret is that there is so much damn work left to be done here on earth. One last thought on the subject of courage. The ring that the Packers wear for winning the first Super Bowl, although the term wasn't yet in use, has a large diamond set in a globe of gold, signifying the championship of the world. Inscribed along one side of the ring are three words denoting qualities that Lombardi pressed into the soul of his players, for these were the traits that he always wanted the team to have as habits of the mind. Harmony, courage, and valor. Lombardi Rule number 3. Embrace your passion. Jump into your passion with both feet and bring others along with you. They call it passion today. In my father's day it was called emotion. 
No matter what word you settle on, I doubt that you could find someone who was as emotional as my father, who could still be as effective as he was. Vision, something we will talk about in a later chapter, is important, but along with vision there must be a hunger, a yearning to achieve the vision. Lombardi Rule Number 4 Be Prepared to Sacrifice Sacrifice and self-denial lie behind every success. Football distills and clarifies the choices that lie behind sacrifice. As my father readily admitted, it's a violent game, and it has to be played violently. It makes demands on players that aren't made in any other sport. It imposes pain and injury, as well as the fear of pain and injury. Playing careers are brutally short. The average career in the NFL is only about four years, which, of course, figures in all those careers that last only a season or two. But these are not sufficient reasons to avoid sacrifice. When Lombardi first got to Green Bay, he found what he considered to be a lackadaisical attitude rampant among the players. After the first day of practice, he was completely discouraged. What could he do to turn this team around? When he walked into the training room the next morning, he found it full of players getting treatment for a variety of minor ailments. He snapped. Get this straight, he barked. When you're hurt, you have every right to be in here. When you're hurt, you'll get the best medical attention we can provide. We've got too much money invested in you to think otherwise. But this has got to stop. This is disgraceful. I have no patience with the small hurts that are bothering most of you. You're going to have to learn to live with small hurts and play with small hurts if you're going to play for me. Now I don't want to see this again. And, for the most part, he didn't. Lombardi Rule Number 5 Demand Total Commitment Demand it first from yourself and then from others around you. Intensity, singleness of purpose, total commitment. These were qualities that I believe had the most to do with the Packers' success. And no one worked harder. No one wanted to win and succeed more than my father did. He was a man who believed in himself and his methods, and he saw victories as an affirmation of himself in those methods. This singleness of purpose came in part from the fact that he had waited so long for the opportunity to be a head coach, to be the one in control. There were times, I'm sure, when he doubted that he would ever get the opportunity. He was 46 when he got the Green Bay job. Many lesser men would have given up by then. By the time he got the job he wanted, he had a lot of pent-up energy and determination to succeed. Singleness of purpose, total commitment, intensity, is something all leaders can develop. Part of it lies in believing in what you're doing. My father fervently believed that what he was doing was very important. I can recall a number of times being in the house when he was away on a trip, and he came home early. We weren't expecting him until later. But you just knew he was in the house. You physically experienced his presence. That was the way it usually was when he walked into a room. 
His intensity was electric. Total commitment can translate into preoccupation, of course, and this can have its comical moments. When my father was a high school coach in New Jersey, we lived in a neighborhood of post-World War II tracked homes, where every house looked virtually the same. On more than a few occasions, my father came home engrossed in some problem relating to his high school team. He drove into the driveway, parked the car, and walked distractedly into the kitchen, only to discover that he was in the wrong house. Lombardi Rule Number Six Weed Out the Uncommitted. The organization that wins is populated by winners. If you quit now, during these workouts, you'll quit in the middle of the season in a game. Once you learn to quit, it becomes a habit. We don't want anyone here who will quit. We want 100% out of each individual. And if you don't want to give it, get out. Just get up and get out right now. These strong words usually were delivered early in training camp and almost always had the desired effects. Weed out the uncommitted and get the last 10% out of everybody else. This certainly applies to the corporate world as well. For example, GE's celebrated CEO, Jack Welch, once said that he felt he had moved too slowly in this area, meaning that he had not moved quickly enough to rid GE of non-performers. While he could be forgiving of managers who might have missed their numbers, he was less forgiving of managers who did not live up to GE's values of passion for excellence, openness, and other Welch-like qualities that demonstrate unwavering commitment to the organization. My father, like his father before him, was always a hard worker. When he took the job as an assistant at West Point under Red Blake, though, he got a new perspective on what constituted hard work. Blake lived and breathed football during most of his waking hours, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. It wasn't unusual for him to reassemble his coaching staff after dinner, long after the cadets had gone off to their studies and to bed, and to watch films and discuss strategies until midnight. Then they'd be at it again first thing in the morning. Lombardi carried these habits forward with him into his professional football career. When the other coaches, the rest of us, would leave the giant offices, head coach Jim Lee Howell once recalled, there was always one light still burning, the one in Vince Lombardi's office. Lombardi's week during the season, and that of his assistants, looked like this. Sunday was game day. Monday the coaching staff would watch Sunday's game films from 9 a.m. until midnight. On Tuesday... They would work from 9 a.m. until 11 p.m., putting together the game plan for the upcoming Sunday. Wednesday consisted of practice and more planning from 9 to 5, then a break while Lombardi taped his TV show, and then two more hours after dinner. Thursday was a little lighter. Practice and meetings with the assistants, wrapping up around 4 p.m., after practice on Friday, the assistants usually took off to scout a college game. They would rejoin the team late Saturday night. 
Sunday it started all over again. In other words, a 60-plus-hour week, every week between July and December, or January if the team was in playoffs, seven days a week, with no days off, and very few excuses accepted. Lombardi sustained this grueling schedule in part because there really was that much work to be done. He was not one to make up busy work just for the show of it. The fact that he was also general manager, as well as coach, made his own workload particularly heavy. But he was also making a point for the benefit of his players. They all saw him put in more effort than they did every day of every week. So they were moved to put in a little extra effort on Sundays, just to balance things out a bit. If you really want something, you can have it if you're willing to pay the price. And the price means you have to work better and harder than the next guy. Lombardi Rule number 7. Work at it. Don't buy the myth of the overnight success. Invest in your talent. I don't believe in overnight successes. No one who shuns the blows and the dust of battle wins a crown, as St. Basil put it. I think that most, maybe even all of those people we celebrate for their effortless achievements, have actually put a whole lot of time and sweat into preparing for their moment of victory. Yes, they make it look easy. That's one of the byproducts of preparation. They may even talk in a way that makes their success seem almost inevitable. But if you listen carefully to them, you'll usually find that they are describing their pursuit of a compelling goal. It's the clarity of that goal, vivid, precise, energizing, that makes their success seem predestined. Hard work isn't simply the number of hours invested or the number of blisters or bruises incurred. Hard work is also discipline the kind of focused training that develops self-control. A good leader must be harder on himself than anyone else. He must first discipline himself before he can discipline others. A man should not ask others to do things he would not have asked himself to do at one time or another in his life. Lombardi Rule number 8. Be disciplined on and off the field. Discipline takes different forms, but it always pertains. Willie Wood, the All-Pro Hall of Fame safety, walked into a meeting one day five minutes before the scheduled starting time. But because everyone else had been ten minutes early, Lombardi had already started the meeting. He gave Wood a terrible chewing out. At the end of the outburst, Wood said sweetly, But coach... I still have five minutes. Everyone laughed, but the point was made. Lombardi made the point in a number of ways, once cutting a player who fell asleep during a meeting. By way of explanation, my father simply commented, Any man who can't stay awake in a meeting, he doesn't belong on the Packers. I believe a man should be on time, not a minute late, not ten seconds late, but on time for things. I believe that a man who's late for meetings or for the bus won't run his pass routes right. He'll be sloppy. Once Art Rooney, the late owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, told my father that he knew a ten-year-old boy 
who was about to try out for a prep school football team. Rooney asked Lombardi if he would give the boy some advice. Dear Tim, my father wrote in a note, if you want to make St. Bede's football team, you must be mentally tough. Best, Vince Lombardi. Mental toughness was one of my father's favorite topics. He believed it was the single most important skill leaders could develop in themselves and in the people around them. Mental toughness is the ability to hold on to your goals in the face of the pressure and stress of current reality. It's the ability to hold on, and hold on, and hold on to what you want in the face of what you've got. Mental toughness is the glue that holds a team together when the heat is on and helps that team persevere just a little bit longer, which in many cases is just long enough to outlast the opposition. Mental toughness is the ability to be at your best at all times, regardless of the circumstances. It's easy to do well when there's no pressure or stress, but how many of us can be poised when the heat is on? Mental toughness is constancy of purpose. It is total focus and emotional control. Mental toughness is not rigidity in the face of adversity. It's stability and poise in the face of challenge. Mental toughness is seeking out the corporate pressure that can't be avoided anyway and being energized by it. It's not the ability to survive a mistake or failure. It's the ability to come back even stronger from failure. What is defeat? Nothing but education. Nothing but the first step to getting better. It is defeat that turns the bones to flint and gristle to muscle and makes men invincible and forms those basic natures that are now in ascendancy in the world. Do not be afraid of defeat. Lombardi Rule Number 9. Be mentally tough. Use your toughness to beat setbacks. Use your toughness to seek out new challenges. Mental toughness is also the determination to look forward and seek out the next challenge, pushing the organization in new directions and acting, rather than simply reacting. We don't persevere just to keep breathing. We persevere to prevail and ultimately to win. And this is character in action. Part 2. Inspiring Others to Greatness How to Lead Like Vince Lombardi Chapter 6. Teaching, Coaching, and Leading So far, the lessons of this book have focused mainly on how a person prepares for a position of leadership. This structure was purposeful. I believe it accurately reflects what Vince Lombardi thought about leadership. Leadership, as he said many times and in many different ways, is a process that begins inside the individual. The individual must take responsibility for developing knowledge about him or herself and must find a purpose through that process of self-discovery. Then he or she must build character on the basis of that knowledge. Eventually, of course, the leader must go beyond him or herself. There is no leader without followers. That's what the next two chapters are about. Once you have adopted the Lombardi leadership model, what comes next? What comes next is some version of teaching, or coaching, or leading. 
My father had a strong sense of what these words mean, and those concepts are at the heart of this chapter. In this chapter, rather than focusing on habits, nouns, we will focus on actions, verbs. We will focus on actions like leading, building, instilling, insisting, creating, and showing. We will focus on striking the balance between closeness and distance, between being one of the boys and being a leader. As we make the transition from individual responsibility to responsibility to the group, we should revisit the topic of what we mean by leadership. For some, leadership means going ahead and showing the way. For others, it means guiding a person and bringing him or her along. For still others, it means providing direction. So defining leadership can be a squishy business and hard to get one's arms around. You squeeze one end and it starts squirting out the other side. One reason for this squishiness is that different circumstances call for different types of leadership. Leadership is not situational. I hope I've made my opinion on that clear. But to find a leader, first you must define the circumstances. For instance, military, Napoleon. Intellectual, Socrates. Charismatic, King David. Reform, Eleanor Roosevelt. Business, Jack Welch. Spiritual, Pope John XXIII. And so on. Different styles? Yes. And the strategies and tactics employed by a leader may change with the situation. But the underlying leadership qualities remain the same. That is, those qualities which bring people around the leader to a higher level of performance. Lombardi Rule Number One Be authentic. Act your integrity. Be predictable. Make amends when you foul up. Authenticity is another word that might be substituted for integrity. My father underscored his authenticity by identifying his own mistakes, putting a spotlight on them, and asking to be forgiven. This was a good thing, too, because, being as volatile and emotional as he was, he jumped the gun on a regular basis. He would fine a player and then have to rescind the fine. He would blurt something out and then have to apologize for it. Instead of coming across as indecisive or insincere, Lombardi came across to his players as authentic and ultimately fair. One day, Lombardi threw veteran safety Emlyn Tunnell off the practice field for what he perceived to be a lack of effort. Tunnell was then in his late thirties, nearing the end of a celebrated career. He was soon to be elected to the Hall of Fame. The next morning, in front of the entire team, Lombardi apologized. What he had done, Lombardi said, was wrong, and he was sorry for it. It took a big man to come to me like that, Tunnell said afterward. A hell of a big man. He didn't have to do that. Leadership ultimately rests on moral authority, and you can't have moral authority without integrity. Leadership is demonstrated on a day-to-day -day basis. Everything you do will be known by your followers. Therefore, you must act at the center of ethical conduct, not at the margins. 
your sense of honor must be greater than your moods. Without integrity there can be no trust, and again, if they don't trust you, you can't lead them. As my father commented many times, the acid test of a leader is the existence of willing followers. How do you create willing followers? By acting with integrity, especially in a pressure situation, when such actions entail some risk to you. Trust is earned through patient investment and long association. It can be destroyed in an instant. Leaders destroy trust in all sorts of ways, including not doing what they said they would do and not saying what's really on their minds. They do it by asking for input when it's obvious they've already made up their minds in a particular direction, or by making up an answer rather than admitting that they don't know. Leaders destroy trust by killing the messenger. People watch their leader extra carefully when bad news arrives. The implicit question in this situation is, is this an authentic organization? Real organizations and real leaders can tolerate, even welcome, bad news. Inauthentic organizations and untrustworthy leaders shoot the messenger. A leader may destroy trust by constantly asking people to do more than is possible. You can't ask people to eat nails or jump in front of trains. More often than not, though, as explained in previous chapters, the organization has room to improve. Asking for effort and improvement in ways that are honest, fair, candid, and open may actually build trust. To Vince Lombardi, leadership was all about winning people's hearts. How does one achieve success in battle? I believe it is essential to understand that battles are won primarily in the hearts of men. Men respond to leadership in a most remarkable way. Once you have won their hearts, they will follow you anywhere. Lombardi Rule Number 2. Earn Trust Through Investment. Use your authority to build the organization's trust in you. Trust can be earned when the leader goes first. I don't recall him ever asking us to do anything he wouldn't do himself, recalled Willie Davis. That means a lot. As a leader, you will be watched closely, and your every action will carry meaning for your people. Everything you do will send a strong signal, either that you mean what you say or that you don't. Actions that contradict your message will destroy trust and will be used as an excuse for not taking you seriously. Not only must you talk the talk and walk the walk, you must understand that your walk talks. Everything you do and everything you don't do say something about what you value as a leader. When discussing integrity and trust, I always cite the advice of Marcus Aurelius. If it is not right, do not do it. If it is not true, do not say it. Do you want to earn your people's trust? Don't ever ask anyone to do anything you haven't done before and aren't ready to do right now, ethically or organizationally. You are the model. That means that when people come to work in the morning, your car should already be in the lot. And when they leave at night, your car should still be right where you parked it that morning. I'm speaking figuratively, but also to some extent literally. Understand this as a leader. 
Your people never take their eyes off of you. They are watching you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you have to walk the talk 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Trust can be earned when the leader acknowledges that there is pain ahead. Almost all adaptation and change involves short-term pain and disruption. The trustworthy leader tells people what to expect, with a bare minimum of sugar-coating. In fact, people expect leaders to make tough decisions and tell them what's coming. They lose faith in those leaders if tough decisions are avoided and bad news doesn't get shared. There are occasions when being hard and being tough immediately is the easiest way and the kindest way, really, in the long run. We have to be hard sometimes to get the most out of people. We have to be hard sometimes to get the most out of ourselves. And what can appear to be cruel at a particular moment can eventually turn out to be a blessing in the long run. As a leader with integrity, what is your biggest challenge in getting your people to adapt to change? I believe it is overcoming the fear of and resistance to change. Fear and resistance prevent adaptation. How do you as a leader overcome the powerful barriers to adaptation? I believe that overcoming the resistance to adaptation and change involves three critical fundamental things. Mission, vision, and values. Lombardi Rule Number 3 Use your mission. Define the goal. Pursue the goal. Sometimes the mission can be threatening to a leader. Total commitment to the mission means that there are real limits on the leader's authority. If the leader issues orders that circumvent or contravene the mission, the members of the organization are obligated to protect the mission against the leader. Again, this is easier said than done. The Green Bay Packers' mission could be boiled down to a succinct sentence. Winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. I'll have more to say about this mission statement in Chapter 9, when I discuss my father's attitudes toward winning and losing. Everything the Packers did was judged against this mission. If the proposed action didn't contribute to winning, it wasn't done. Lombardi Rule Number 4. Create a Shared Vision. We Can Do Better is a good place to start. In Chapter 5, we talked about sacrifice and total commitment on a personal level. The decision to choose one path over another, with the awareness that it means giving things up. Individuals do this only when they have a clear sense of the goal, the championship, the big contract, victory in the election. This challenge is even greater at the organizational level. As we said earlier, if people can't see it, they can't commit to it. Unless your power to articulate a vision is strong, you can't call forth organizational commitment. Your people have to see, hear, taste, and smell the vision. They have to recognize it when it comes down the hall. During Lombardi's second year in Green Bay, the Packers lost the 1960 championship game to the Philadelphia Eagles. The game was played in Philadelphia the day after Christmas. The Packers outplayed the Eagles, but came up short on the scoreboard, losing 17-13. It was a devastating defeat for the Packers, 
who left the field knowing they were the better team. My father quickly called the players together in the locker room. Without yelling or even raising his voice, he made a powerful, vision-rich speech. Perhaps you didn't realize that you could have won this game. But I think there's no doubt in your minds now. And that's why you will win it all next year. Jim Ringo, the all-pro center on that team, recalled him saying, We are men, and we will never let this happen again. We will never be defeated in a championship game again. Now we can start preparing for next year. We will never be defeated in a championship game again. The Packers won the NFL championship the following year, and the year after that for good measure. Visions change. The vision that earns you your first championship may not secure you a fourth or fifth championship. The leader must constantly assess how the established vision fits in with the organization's evolving needs and, when necessary, begin a process of recalibration. My father knew that the 1967 season would be a particularly difficult one for the Packers. They were the oldest team in the NFL. They'd just won their second consecutive championship and their fourth in six years. From that point on, every team they played would be gunning for them, since every team in the league set their sights on accomplishing one goal, beating the two-time champs. Lombardi knew he needed something to rekindle the desire in his veterans to push for a third championship. From the first day of that 1967 training camp, therefore, he held up a new vision in front of the team. A third championship. This was their challenge, he told them. No team had ever won three in a row, he said. Maybe none ever would. And, as of this writing, no other team has. But this year, he said passionately, we have that chance. The championship ring that the Packers earned at the end of that season by beating the Oakland Raiders has three diamonds across its face, representing the three consecutive championships. And on one side of the ring is the word challenge. When creating your vision, you must look beyond current reality. Don't make the mistake of limiting your vision by what seems possible today. If you do, you will confine your vision to what appears to be realistic. And where is the inspiration to be found in that? A third concept, values, speaks to how you and your people intend to conduct yourselves as you pursue your vision. The objective is to win, fairly, squarely, decently, win by the rules, but still win. Values are the way people actually do things. Your agreed-upon values determine the behaviors within your culture. Like mission and vision, your values are non-negotiable. They get to issues of professionalism, in the literal sense of professing things. In his first meeting with the Packer players, for example, Lombardi told them, You may not be a football player. You may not be a tackle. You may not be a guard. You may not be a back. But you will be a professional. Lombardi rule number five. Align your values. Bring espoused values into congruence with practices. Or else. 
The way to work toward alignment is for the leader to ask some tough questions and see where the organization comes down on them. Is there a difference between what we say we believe and what we actually do when the pressure is on? The Packers of the 1960s had a nearly exact congruence between their espoused values and their practiced values, a circumstance that every leader hopes and prays for. The team's values were an extension of my father's values, and, as I noted in the introduction to this book, my father's values were sharply profiled and distinctive. He coached during the 1960s, a period in our nation's history when the things he so clearly stood for, sacrifice, discipline, and the dogged pursuit of excellence, were being widely questioned and often repudiated. The media focused their attention on the counterculture, Haight-Ashbury, and the increasingly troubling morass of Vietnam. My father's values stood out all the more as time passed. He became a symbol. Some people applauded him. Many others attacked him. Publicly, he put on a brave face. Each of us must be prepared to adhere to his principles, if he is certain in his own conscience that he is doing right, if he is getting the job done to his satisfaction and to the approbation of the various publics he serves. He must develop a thick skin to criticism and let the caustic comments he receives from some quarters pass over his head. It is sometimes a hard thing to do, by the way, to go out and even laugh at things that offend sensibilities or offend families. Privately, though, the criticisms stung. He hated having his friends and family read condemnations of Vince Lombardi in the newspapers or hear him vilified on television. To his credit, though, he never wavered. He had to live his values, and both he and his organization had to be viewed as driven by values. People could take exception to particular values embodied by the coach or the team, but they must never be given the opportunity to call the organization morally bankrupt. Lombardi Rule number 6. Know your stuff. When the time comes, show that you know it. I've already referred several times to my father's long apprenticeship, high school, Fordham, West Point, and New York. He chafed at being an assistant for so many years and resented being held back. But over all those years he also achieved a level of mastery over his craft that few others ever attained. This mastery served him well when he finally got his opportunity. Coaches and players alike understood that Lombardi was unlikely to make naive mistakes. Because he was so clearly competent, the occasional bad call or bad break never undercut his authority. In the three years before my father arrived in Green Bay, the Packers' win-loss records were 4-8, and 3-9, and 1-10-1. And and All the momentum, in other words, was in the wrong direction. Confidence would have been hard to find anywhere in the vicinity of Lambeau Field. Then something unexpected happened. In came a new coach, who stated flatly that he had never been part of a losing team and sure didn't intend to start now. How can we explain the success the Packers enjoyed in the 1960s? If I had to pick a one-word summary, I'd pick the word confidence. When Bart Starr, the all-pro quarterback during Lombardi's years in Green Bay, attended his first meeting with his new coach, 
He was overwhelmed by the level of planning and preparation that Lombardi brought to the meeting. At the first break, he rushed to the phone to call his wife. We're going to win, he told her excitedly. That was exactly the impression that Lombardi was trying to create, and he was clearly successful. What set Coach Lombardi apart was his ability to make each player feel confident and believe in himself. My father practically oozed confidence in the forcefulness of his voice, his carriage, his very presence. He once said that you dispel defeatism by grabbing it by the ears and throwing it out. Projecting confidence was partly stage-setting, of course. The real confidence-builder was preparation. Lombardi prepared his players for every game, for every eventuality. Going into a game, they believed they would never encounter a situation they weren't prepared to handle. What was Julius Caesar's celebrated analysis of his legions? Without training, they lacked knowledge. Without knowledge, they lacked confidence. Without confidence, they lacked victory. My father believed that preparation for a football game was 80% physical and 20% mental. This ratio, he also believed, reversed during the competition itself. At that stage, it was 80% mental and 20% physical. Football was a game played above the shoulders, he often said, which meant that you needed confidence, which meant in turn that you needed to be completely prepared. Lombardi Rule Number 7. Generate Confidence. Set the stage psychologically and give people the tools they need. For instance, Lombardi rarely talked about injuries. His explanation was insightful. If you were with the Packers and were a sub, he once asked rhetorically, and if you read in the paper on Thursday that I had suggested that we were going to lose because the regular was unable to play because of injuries, how would you feel? If I suggested we were going to lose because you were going to play, you would not feel very confident in yourself. Success, in turn, brought more confidence, which brought more success. You'd be surprised, my father liked to say, how much confidence a little success will bring. A great deal of that confidence originated from and was invested in the person of Vince Lombardi. Halfback Paul Horning, who knew my father better than most players, was a believer. If Lombardi told me to move out wide on the next play, jump over the wall, run into the stands and buy a program, Horning once said, I would have thought it had some direct bearing on the play. It might even score a touchdown. My father's players believed in him. Because of that, they also came to believe in themselves. After all, that's who he believed in. His system, his success, was built on the premise that the players could do what he demanded of them. He asked them to have confidence in him and his system, and together they would succeed. You owe something to these people who are coming to see you today. When this game ends, I want them to say they just saw the greatest team they ever saw. They just saw the greatest defensive end they ever saw. They just saw the greatest offensive guard they ever saw. If they don't come out saying that, your record doesn't mean anything. The word excellence comes from Latin words that mean to rise out of. So excellence is the state of superior performance rising out of an original state of potential. 
My father insisted on excellence up and down the Packer organization and in every aspect of the team's on-field performance. He believed that people wanted to excel. That's a human constant, he once said. He understood the importance of setting extremely high standards and never relaxed those standards. Lombardi Rule Number 8. Chase Perfection. Settle for excellence along the way. The fourth dimension that determines success or failure is selfless teamwork and collective pride, which accumulate until they make positive thinking and victory habitual. My father employed all three of these models, although he certainly never learned or used the jargon of contemporary organizational theory. He understood that some people, the great ones, are self-motivated to be their best. Others are motivated by the goal of beating the competition. Still others take their greatest satisfaction from being a part of a successful team effort. His task, and the task of every leader, was to determine what motivated each individual. Not everyone responds the same way. The leader must find each person's hot button. Jerry Kramer, the all-pro guard who threw the critical block in the 1967 championship game, tells of an incident that occurred early in his career. During a goal-line scrimmage, Jerry couldn't seem to do anything right. He was jumping offside, missing his assignments. My father got in Kramer's face. Mister, he yelled, the attention span for a grade school kid is 30 seconds, for a high school kid a minute, for a college kid three minutes. Mister, where does that leave you? He called him a fat cow as well as a bunch of other things I can't repeat. By the end of practice, Kramer was ready to quit. Seriously ready to quit. Clearly, at least on this occasion, Lombardi had failed to find Jerry's hot button. Kramer later recalled that he was sitting in front of his locker trying to decide whether to quit immediately or wait until the end of the season. Lombardi walked through the locker room, took a look at Kramer, and sized up the situation. He walked over, tousled Kramer's hair, and told him, Son, some day you are going to be one of the greatest guards in football. Kramer will tell you that from that day forward he never had to be pushed as a football player. He will tell you that from that point on his sole motivation as a football player was... I want to be one of the greatest guards in football. On the second attempt, Coach Lombardi found his guard's hot button. Lombardi believed strongly in the benefits of competition. Indeed, he thought that it was a bedrock of the American economy and culture. He encouraged individuals and teams to be better than they were last year or last week. And he placed an extraordinary emphasis on the value of teamwork and on creating success as a group that could not be achieved by individuals. Football, like every other field of endeavor, has its elite, and this elite is based on excellence and execution. Excellence is achieved by the relentless pursuit of perfection. Lombardi talked as often about perfection as he did about excellence. He considered excellence to be an attainable byproduct of the quest for perfection, which even he admitted was not attainable. He thought of the quest for perfection, whether as a coach or a player, as both necessary and frustrating. 
The satisfactions are few, I guess, for perfectionists, he once wrote, but I have never known a good coach who wasn't one. Lombardi Rule Number 9. Live what you teach, and live what you coach, and sell what you teach and coach. Great teachers, and great coaches, win the hearts of their students. They do so, Lombardi used to say, by selling themselves, being involved right up to your neck, and making that commitment clear. You've got to live it all day long, he once commented, in the car, at home, at night, looking at the pictures, out on the practice field. In other words, Lombardi was also a salesman. He sold himself to the team, and the team to itself. Coaching is selling. Selling is teaching. My customers are not so much the fans, but rather the players. I have to first sell them on themselves, and then on the small hurts, because the small hurts are not only a part of football, but also a part of life. And then I must sell them on this team, on this season, on this game, and each individual play as the most important thing in their lives. As you climb the ranks of the organizational hierarchy, the demands that the organization places upon you change in many ways, some obvious and some subtle. New titles, of course, bring new responsibilities, a broader perspective, more direct reports. These are the obvious changes. But new titles also bring, among other things, a change in the relationship between the leader and the led. When my father was with the Giants, and still an assistant coach, he played golf with the players in the daytime, and cards with them at night. Sometimes he had players over to our house for dinner. One time, just before the regular season began, he decided that the team was too tense. While head coach Jim Lee Howell was out of town, my father threw a party for the entire team. He wouldn't have claimed cause and effect, of course, but the team did loosen up and did go on to win the division championship that year. In Green Bay, Lombardi kept his distance from the players. Now he played golf and cards with friends from the local business community. He didn't socialize with his assistants. He was the leader. This was a turn of events that my father wasn't particularly happy about. One of the things he liked best about football was the close association with the players the camaraderie. As an assistant, he was able to enjoy that easy relationship to the fullest. Things changed when he became head coach. True, he was also getting older, and it would have been unrealistic to imagine that he could stay close to generations of football players who were getting progressively younger. But he also knew that changed circumstances called for new behavior from Vince Lombardi. There's a great closeness on a football team, you know, a rapport between the men and the coach that's like no other sport. It's a binding together, a knitting together. For me, it's like fathers and sons, and that's what I missed. I missed players coming up to me and saying, Coach, I need some help because my baby's sick. Or, Mr. Lombardi, I want to talk with you about trouble I'm having with my wife. That's what I missed most. The closeness. Lombardi Rule number 10. Strike the balance. Be as close as you can be, and as far away as you have to be.
I include the foregoing coda to make the point that when it comes to distance between leaders and followers, the standards become highly personal and individual. I think my father was right in arguing for a self-imposed distance between the leader and the led. But he also knew that a good leader feels deeply for his people. In fact, that's in the unwritten job description. And that these ties have to be acknowledged too. They're part of the job, and part of being a caring human being. Chapter 7 Building the Winning Organization Vince Lombardi is remembered as a winner. His championships with the Green Bay Packers and his career win-loss record set him apart from all other coaches in professional football. The enduring image, the one that winds up on the covers of most books about him, is being carried from the field on the shoulders of his jubilant players. In the next few chapters, I will make the case that his outstanding record on the football field reflected the hard work that he did off the field. What Vince Lombardi was really about was building a winning organization, one that performed off the field as well as on the field. Over the next three chapters, I'll explain how he built that organization and how he maintained its winning edge. This involved setting up effective structures and an effective system, and also recruiting good people and motivating them to work within that system. Picking the Winning Job Building the winning organization begins with an obvious but critical choice. Which organization are you going to affiliate yourself with? Answering this question requires a careful reading of the marketplace. Even the most talented manager could fail by taking the right job at the wrong time. For example, going into almost any aspect of the real estate business in 1990 would have been a bad bet. Similarly, in the fall of 2000, many of the high-flying dot-coms came falling back to earth after several years of incredible growth. As a result, thousands of workers and managers lost their jobs as companies were forced to cut back on their spending. The ideal management job may be found in a situation that meets the following two criteria. One, the ranks of the organization are full of latent talent that has yet to show itself. And two, the organization itself is well positioned in an industry that's about to take off. Those were the circumstances that prevailed in Green Bay, Wisconsin in 1959. Very few people saw it that way, of course. The team's horrible 1958 record of 1-10-1 and one obscured some important facts. Thanks in large part to eight years of superb work by Jack Venisi, the Packers' director of scouting, and also due to the high draft picks that resulted from a succession of miserable seasons, the Packers of the late 1950s were endowed with talent. But that talent had not gelled. Why? Mainly because the Green Bay coaches, prior to Lombardi, had proved unable to take these talented individuals and mold them into a team. Although many in the NFL did not see the Packers as competitive, others, including Vince Lombardi, saw opportunity in Green Bay. Another thing that not everybody at the time understood was that professional football, the Packers' industry, was about to take off. College football had long been considered the pinnacle of the game. 
Its supposedly amateur players were seen as more noble than their professional counterparts, who were involved in play for pay. But in the 1950s, some colleges began to de-emphasize football, feeling that it was too distracting, unnecessarily violent, too expensive, or simply not what an academic institution ought to be focusing its attention on. But what would fill the void after some once-proud college football programs, including Fordham, Lombardi's own alma mater, left the field? Baseball may have been the national pastime, but football had a distinctive appeal to a growing number of Americans. It was action, but it was also the anticipation of action that made football fascinating. My father phrased it in an interesting way. You know why football is so popular? Those people running around hitting each other? Hell no. It's because of the huddle. Every time the clock stops, every time the play is over, the huddle forms. And the fan puts himself in the same situation, tries to figure out what he would do. Football is situation as much as action. But could pro football, which had always been seen as an afterthought to the college game, win the hearts of Americans? The answer came at the end of the 1958 NFL season, when the Baltimore Colts and the New York Giants played a classic championship game. A battle of two great teams, punctuated by acts of great athleticism and courage, the game subsequently was dubbed the greatest football game ever played. It was also the first NFL championship game that was played under the new sudden-death rules, which called for play beyond regulation time to break a tie. And, coincidentally, the game was broadcast to a national TV audience, which was thrilled with what it saw that day at Yankee Stadium as the Colts beat the Giants in overtime. Although the broadcast was crude by today's standards, it was clear that football and television were a good match. Television got viewers closer to the action than they would have been in the stadium itself. Large forces were converging. My father was on the Giants' sideline during that pivotal game, serving as the Giants' offensive coach. By then, of course, he was well established with the Giants as a successful and respected assistant coach. But that cut both ways. Longtime assistant coaches tended to retire as longtime assistant coaches. Lombardi, however, wasn't necessarily doomed to that fate if he stayed with the Giants. The team's owners, Jack and Wellington Mara, seemed to have made an informal promise to my father that when Giant head coach Jim Lee Howell retired, Lombardi would get the call to succeed him. But there was no hint that the call would come any time soon, and my father wasn't getting any younger. Howell, ably supported by his two notable assistants, Lombardi on the offense, future Hall of Famer Tom Landry on the defense, was enhancing his own job security by leading the Giants to victory. Lombardi, meanwhile, was having trouble sharing the limelight with Howell and Landry. Vince was the type person who needed to be in charge, Landry later commented, I think with more than a touch of understatement. Having a strong peer like Landry may have been irksome to my father, although he had enormous respect for Landry. I guess it was inevitable that two strong men like Vince Lombardi and Tom Landry would be at odds, Howell recalled. 
They were fussing all the time. Lombardi Rule Number One Pick the Right Organization. This isn't quite as obvious as it sounds. Where can you go where there's a lot of unrealized potential and where there's a rising tide? When the Philadelphia Eagles made an overture to my father in 1957, the year before the Colts-Giants championship game described above, he was sorely tempted. Then, 45 years old, he was already older than many head coaches in the NFL. He confided to friends that he was despairing of ever getting one of the top 12 jobs in professional football. If he turned down Philadelphia, would he ever get another call? Eventually, he decided against taking the job with the Eagles. His friends and advisors, including Giants owners Jack and Wellington Mara, persuaded him that he wouldn't have enough authority or autonomy with the Eagles, whose broad ownership base made them badly fragmented. Wait for the right opportunity, they counseled him. And it was good advice. When Vince Lombardi took over as the coach in Green Bay in the early months of 1959, therefore, he was clearly focused on running his own show. The Packer organization had agreed to let him serve as both coach and general manager, effectively giving him complete operating control of the club. There were owners in Green Bay. They just weren't the equivalent of the all-powerful Giants owners. The team was owned by a large number of local people who held shares in a non-dividend-paying, non-profit corporation, making the Packers the only true community franchise in the NFL. Their interests were represented by an executive committee which had the ultimate responsibility for running the team. The committee had the ability to vest operating authority in one individual, and with a clear understanding that the future of the franchise was probably on the line, they had agreed to vest it in Vince Lombardi. Lombardi Rule Number 2. Demand Autonomy What do you absolutely have to control to make your job possible? If you can't get that degree of autonomy, you can't succeed. I've included many of my father's thoughts on this subject because it seems clear to me that by striking the right deal up front, he gave himself enormous latitude to make changes on the scale and of the scope that he was contemplating. This was truly a case in which a business turnaround was needed. It's hard to get much lower than one ten and one. The Packers' executive committee had consciously gone out and hired what would today be called a turnaround artist. Lombardi had demanded, and the board had agreed to cede, sufficient authority to make things happen. Of course, these are the specifics of a particular situation. I think the generalizations behind the specifics, however, are still meaningful. Develop a clear sense of the right opportunity. Understand your bargaining position. Bargain for autonomy, especially if you're planning big changes. Give yourself enough elbow room to survive the inevitable missteps of the initial phase of your new situation. Lombardi Rule Number 3. Respect Authority. If you're going to ask people to respect your authority, you'll need to lead by example. Whatever hierarchy you're in, assuming its authority is legitimate, deserves your respect. 
a major press conference was scheduled on the eve of a championship game. Everyone showed up except the head coach of one of the competing teams, Vince Lombardi. NFL employees reached my father by phone at his nearby hotel. Lombardi said that since he hadn't been informed of the press conference and already had made other plans, he wouldn't be attending. Commissioner Roselle got on the phone. After a very brief conversation, my father said he'd be right over. At the end of the press conference, someone thanked Lombardi for changing his plans and attending. His response was telling. You've got to remember one thing. If you're going to exercise authority, you've got to respect it. Lombardi Rule Number 4. Delegate the Second-Tier Stuff. Look for existing competence in the organization and take full advantage of that competence. As for delegating things related to football, my father had a simple policy. He didn't. He controlled his assistant coaches, especially his offensive assistants, far more thoroughly than most of his counterparts did. He used them primarily as sounding boards. They were not expected to discipline players. Lombardi wanted to be the only coach who exerted significant control over the players. The resulting prescription seems self-evident. Figure out what you must control and control that. Then identify non-critical operations, like Milwaukee ticket sales, where you already have strong help, and define them as somebody else's problem. Lombardi Rule Number 5 Check your hat. Is your own position evolving? If so, how should the changes be reflected in your job description and those of others around you? Again, your successes should let you give things up. A less obvious extension of this principle would be to look for ways to move things from the first category to the second category. This is especially important if you're the kind of person, like my father, who was temperamentally inclined to consider everything critical especially when he was tackling a new situation. Things evolve if you let them. Learn to unload. And finally, figure out which hat you really need to wear, and figure out how long you need to wear it. The primary reason my father quit coaching the Packers after the 1968 season was that he was overwhelmed by his two jobs, coach and general manager. He gave up the more stressful of the two roles, the coaching job that put him on national TV every in-season Sunday as either a winner or a loser. He soon regretted that decision. He had given up the job that he loved, the stress notwithstanding, in favor of the job that he had initially taken to protect his operational authority. Lombardi Rule Number 6. Be brilliant, but don't be stubborn about it. Yes, your job is to bring new insights and turn things around. But forcing a square peg into a round hole doesn't get either job done. My father came up with a few of the latter. Green Bay's first draft pick in 1961 was a talented running back from Michigan State named Herb Adderley. He had been drafted for his speed and his talent for open field running. In preseason practices, Lombardi and his staff discovered that Adderley had good hands and ran pass routes well. Lombardi decided that he would try to use him as a receiver. Lombardi and the assistants put Adderley through his paces as a flanker and then put him in a game. 
and, as my father later recalled, nothing happened. Why? In his bones, in his heart, Adderley saw himself as a defensive back. He simply couldn't get comfortable on offense. My father and his assistants were too committed to their insight to change directions. After switching to the defense, Adderley went on to become a Hall of Fame cornerback. Lombardi Rule Number 7 Import If there's someone out there who already knows your system and can help you survive the building or rebuilding period, grab him or her. Another technique employed by my father to start piecing a winning organization together was to trade for players who already knew his system. Shortly after arriving in Green Bay, for example, he picked up safety Emlyn Tunnell from the Giants. Tunnell was a savvy veteran who understood Lombardi's defensive philosophy and was able to serve as an informal defensive captain on the field while the rest of the defensive team got up to speed. Later, with the Redskins, Lombardi picked up Chuck Mercine, Bob Long, and Tom Brown, former Packers who understood his system and, more importantly, his methods. Sometimes this practice annoyed veteran players who didn't understand why Lombardi was bringing in outsiders to replace their teammates. Lombardi didn't worry about this kind of grumbling from the players. Both in Green Bay and in Washington, he needed strong allies quickly. In addition to that, he generally favored veterans over rookies. Unlike the talented rookie Herb Adderley, for example, veterans were known quantities, and they made fewer mistakes. My father thought that it was generally easier to spot underutilized talent within the pro ranks than to pull off a coup in the annual college draft, although, as coach and general manager, he certainly spent plenty of time worrying about the draft. Lombardi Rule Number 8. Build Skills Today people are demanding that organizations provide them with portable skills, and you can't put big demands on people before you define and provide the needed skills. Training camp was also the place where veterans and rookies alike learned to do their jobs better. For the most part, this meant doing specific drills over and over and over again, until doing those drills successfully became second nature. Again, my father would shout after a poorly executed play. Again. It was tough, boring, painful, and in the short term immensely unpleasant work. But it was also the kind of hard work that led to long-term payoffs. Tight end Gary Knaffel had the best one-liner regarding the level of work and commitment that was required. Lombardi works you so hard, Knaffel once said, that when he tells you to go to hell, you look forward to the trip. Lombardi rule number nine, let them see you sweat. Why should they kill themselves for the organization if you don't? Maybe that's the key, Redskins quarterback Sonny Jurgensen once commented. He works harder than anyone and wants us to do well. You have to respect a man like that. He's total. As my father built skills, he also monitored attitudes. Generally, people's attitudes should improve along with their skills, especially after they have a couple of wins under their belts. When that didn't happen, and my father decided that the situation couldn't be salvaged, 
he moved quickly to get rid of the bad apple. I don't want any bad apples in my organization. I get one apple in the bushel over here, and the rest of them will start rotting too. Lombardi Rule Number 10. Build Team Spirit. This means common goals, complementary skills and abilities, and mutual accountability. Complementary skills and abilities, of course, are what make football a great game. People play and watch football to experience the unique thrill that results when all the right ingredients, that elusive, perfect mix of brains, brawn, experience, and drive, somehow come together to produce a winner. Coming up with that mix and motivating the players who contribute to it is what separated my father from all but a few of his fellow head coaches. He knew that a successful team accepts one another's strengths, weaknesses, and unique contributions. He also knew that how members of the team interact with one another is one of the key determinants of success. Business is a very complex machine, all of whose components are people. And as in a football team, it is vital that people mesh and gear smoothly. On Tuesdays, the Packers watched films of the previous Sunday's game. Each play was reviewed over and over as each player's effort was scrutinized and critiqued by Coach Lombardi in front of the entire team. In addition, by Thursday, the coaching staff had graded each player on every play, and the marks were posted in the locker room in plain sight for everyone to see. The players feared Lombardi's midweek criticism, which motivated them to play well on Sunday. When Lombardi chewed you out on Tuesday, that was all the motivation you needed not to repeat that mistake again. After all, the last thing anyone on the team wanted was to let down his teammates. But each player's real concern and chief motivation was how their play on Sunday was going to appear to their teammates on Tuesday and Thursday. No one wanted his teammates to think he couldn't get the job done or that he didn't belong any longer. Build for your team a feeling of oneness, of dependence upon one another, and of strength to be derived from unity. The Lombardi principles were laid on the line every Sunday when the Packers took the field. Everything my father aspired to, from character in action to mental toughness, was put to the test on every snap of the football. That's when the results of all of his preparation and leadership became evident. One play, perhaps above all others, best illustrates how common goals, complementary skills, and accountability came together to play a vital role in the Packers' success. Although the play did not originate in Green Bay, my father's Packers made it famous. So it seems right that the play became known as the Packer Sweep, also referred to as the Lombardi Sweep. It might just as accurately have been called the Giant Sweep, or maybe even the Ram Sweep. As a new assistant coach with the Giants, my father spent a lot of time early in 1954 studying films of a certain play run by the Rams. The sweep was a running play that called for the guards and the fullback to lead the halfback around the end. After adding a few variations of his own, my father introduced it to the Giants that summer and made it a prominent part of his offensive game plan. When it came to the sweep, my father was relentless. He drilled that play into the soul of every player on the offense. He went over it again and again, chalk in hand, reviewing every assignment. 
he would sell and resell the goal of the play. This is the lead play in our offense, he'd say. We must make it go. We will make it go. We will run it again and again and again, and we will make it go. The one play everybody remembers most, coach and commentator John Madden later recalled, is what came to be known as the Lombardi Sweep. Paul Horning takes a handoff from Bart Starr and runs to his right behind the block of Jim Taylor, the fullback, and Jerry Kramer and Fuzzy Thurston, the two guards who had pulled out of the line. The success of the Packer offense depended on the success of this one play. If everyone performed as the play was designed, the team succeeded. But if just one assignment was missed, the play would fail. The Packers would run the sweep over and over, challenging their opponents to stop them. Inevitably, in adjusting to the sweep, the opposing defense would leave themselves vulnerable to other plays in the Packer playbook. If you couldn't stop the sweep, you couldn't beat the Packers. Quarterback Bart Starr watched my father get up at the blackboard and diagram this sequence of assignments. Eleven assignments, one for each player on the offense, every summer for nine straight years. He said that it was a brilliant performance, which captivated him every time he saw it. There's nothing spectacular about it. It's just a yard gainer. And I've diagrammed it so many times and coached it so much and watched it evolve so often since I first put it in with the Giants eight years ago that I think I see it in my sleep. Lombardi Rule Number 11. Innovate Without Complicating. This isn't a universal prescription. An organization at death's door may have to innovate every which way and may still go through the door. But innovations must reflect people's limited capacities to learn and to change. Be fair and realistic. For all of these reasons and more, my father was loath to depart from his game plan. Still, he would tip his hat to the inevitability of change, especially over the long term. One must not hesitate to innovate and change with the times and the varying formations. The leader who stands still is not progressing, and he will not remain a leader for long. But fundamentally, Lombardi believed in playing to one's strengths. What it will all come down to again on Sunday, I'm thinking, is that we will both try to do what we do best. We know everything they can do, and they know everything we can do. So we will both go with our strength. Chapter 8. Motivating the Team to Extraordinary Performance Almost any vision, if it is sound, will succeed, as long as people are motivated and inspired to make it work. Leaders motivate and inspire people in many of the ways we've already discussed in Chapters 4 through 7. For example, they display respect for others, show compassion, demonstrate courage and competence, Exhibit and kindle passion. Make sacrifices. Have and demonstrate total commitment. Work hard and demonstrate discipline. Lead with integrity and build trust. Shape and share a vision. Identify and live their values. Insist on excellence. Inspire confidence. If you take the word motivation and add a letter here and there, you get motive to act. Motivation, then, can be defined as either a motive, an inner drive, or an externally imposed stimulus or incentive to act. 
Inspiration also implies a stimulus toward action, but adds a creative component. The power of the vision itself is a motivator. In this chapter, we will look more closely at some of the ways that my father motivated people. If there was one thing that my father understood above all else, it was how to motivate and inspire people. My father felt that success depended on a leader's ability to get others to act. He was an expert in dealing with people, the best motivator in his business, and, in my own experience, better than most in other businesses, too. In this chapter, I draw out the key lessons on how to motivate both teams and individuals. Leaders motivate and inspire by creating a climate for success. They motivate by kindling passion, painting a picture of success through mission, vision, and values, fanning the flame of team spirit, and inspiring confidence. They motivate by demanding accountability and obtaining results. These themes recur throughout this book, but they have special significance when seen through the lens of motivation. Lombardi Rule Number One Offer people meaning. If you don't, someone else will. Meaning, of course, comes from within. In Chapter 3, I wrote about self-discovery as the path to self-knowledge, which in turn is the foundation for meaning and purpose. In recent years, many companies have tried to create cultures that encourage self-discovery. They have challenged members of their organizational team to state what's really important and suggest ways to move the organization in that direction. If you are in a position to set policy in this direction, I suggest you do so with all due speed. Let the people who work for you tell you what's important to them. You may not agree with their conclusions, or you may want to go way beyond what they tell you. But at least you'll have a strong point of departure as you try to set the motivational table. Lombardi Rule Number 2 Keep Enormous Pressure On But Stay Within the Individual and Organizational Breaking Points Again, this is one of the keys to Lombardi's leadership success. Lombardi put enormous pressure on his players. He pushed, and he pushed, and then he pushed some more. In so many words, he was asking his players a pointed question. If they couldn't handle the pressure he was putting on them in practice, how would they be able to stand up to the pressure of a championship game on national television, perhaps in front of 70,000 hostile fans? Not every leader can do it the way Lombardi did it, nor should they. But somehow, you as a leader must determine how your people will perform in a pressure situation. Will they make mistakes? Will they fold and quit on you, at least figuratively? The questions are real ones because, sooner or later, you will be in your version of a championship game. Then it will be too late to compensate if your people don't come through for you. The most important thing a coach needs is the knowledge that his team can or can't play under pressure. If it can't, you need new players. If it can, you can make do with average. Lombardi's Packers could handle pressure. For nine years, he applied more and more pressure. Big games to them were just more of the same. Lombardi's championship teams of 1961 and 1962 had as much talent as, or more talent than, any other team they played. 
The 65, 66, and 67 championship teams, however, were not on a par, talent-wise, with some of their opponents. So how did they continue to win championships? They handled the pressure of the big game better than their opponents. They never beat themselves. My father started with the assumption that professional football teams were more or less at parity, that the money, the players, and the coaching were more or less comparable. What distinguished a winning team from a losing team was often its level of inspiration and motivation. It was a taxing, draining, maddening, his word, burdensome, and sometimes boring job. This is not easy, this effort, day after day, week after week, to keep them up, but it is essential. Each week there is a different challenge, but there is also that unavoidable degree of sameness to these meetings. My father used every trick in the book to get his teams up for a game. Trick isn't exactly the right word because it implies deception. Lombardi didn't deceive his players in order to motivate them. They would have seen through him immediately. But he wasn't above a little play-acting, either. I remember one day I saw him before practice. He was in a pretty good mood. I don't recall the specifics, but I remember thinking that he wasn't the holy terror that the team might have been expecting. A few minutes later, I happened to pass by the open door of his locker room. I looked in and saw him standing in front of the mirror, practicing a range of menacing and hostile facial expressions. He was putting on his game face. I'm just going to give these guys complete hell today. Today is going to be one of those days. Giving the team hell was certainly a big piece of my father's motivational, inspirational approach. On Tuesdays, the players would watch the game film from the previous Sunday. Players who had performed poorly knew that they were in for a semi-public humiliation. It could get hot in that locker room, and it usually did. Lombardi Rule number 3. Motivate the group. Find ways to move people en masse. All right, barked my father enthusiastically, switching gears with astonishing ease. Now that's the kind of attitude I want to see. Who else feels that way? The answer, of course, was that everybody felt that way. First one person got up, then another, and then another. Eventually my father had the whole team on its feet, expressing its desire and determination to win. Other times, particularly after a good but losing effort, my father would take an entirely different approach. Perhaps you didn't realize you could have won this game. But I think there's no doubt in your minds now, and that's why you will win it all next year. This will never happen again. You will never lose another championship. That's what he told the team after Green Bay lost the championship game to Philadelphia in 1960. Some people have misread this kind of inconsistency as pure manipulation an effort to keep everybody guessing, off balance, on edge, on their toes. What's Coach going to do next? There was some of that at play here. But mainly I think that in both cases he was expressing his emotions honestly. I think he was also using the specifics of the two defeats, one sloppy and filled with mistakes, the other courageous, to steer the team toward a better outcome next time. It was just a matter of different situations, 
different tactics. Lombardi Rule Number 4. Counter-Expectations Sometimes the least expected motivational device is the best. Before a game against the arch-rival Bears in 1967, he skipped the high-volume exhortation that many of the Packers must have been expecting. Instead, he told a joke, keying off the fact that the area around Green Bay had been settled many years earlier by Belgian immigrants. Did you ever hear why Belgians are so strong? No, coach, came the reply. Why? Because they raise dumbbells. The Packers groaned at this lame attempt at humor. It was, in fact, a joke the Belgian-Americans told on themselves, and many in the room had heard it before. They razzed their unpredictable coach and took the field. It took the edge off the tension, Jerry Kramer later commented, demonstrating very well that he understood his coach's motivational techniques. Vince Lombardi placed a great deal of emphasis on team bonding as a way to motivate his players. He cultivated a number of rituals, mandatory singing by first-year men during training camp, buffet dinners after preseason games with friends and family invited, Thanksgiving dinner with the entire team and their families, all the players wearing green sport coats with the Packer logo on the breast pocket when they traveled as a team, all done to motivate the players and get them to think as a unit. Not offense or defense, rookie or veteran, black or white, but a team. This technique dated back at least to his days with the Giants, many of whom lived near each other and socialized together. Lombardi was quite successful at recreating this culture in Green Bay with its small-town atmosphere. With only one year in Washington, he didn't have the time to pull it off a third time. Certainly the challenge would have been greater since the Redskins were scattered across the Washington metropolitan area. Lombardi Rule number 5. Motivate the Individual Nothing, after all, is more personal. Max McGee, one of my father's favorite players, tells a story that is a good example of how each player was treated fairly yet differently. During preseason camp, the Packers ran a drill known as the Nutcracker. This was my father's favorite drill. The players, on the other hand, hated it. It went like this. Two tackling dummies were laid parallel to each other a few feet apart. Two players an offensive player and a defensive player, would line up nose-to-nose -nose inside the dummies. An offensive back would line up behind the offensive player. At the snap of the ball, the offensive player would try to drive the defensive player backwards, giving the running back room enough to run by while staying inside the dummies. The collisions that took place during this drill practically shook the ground. It was a drill that taught the fundamentals of blocking and tackling but it was also a test of your manhood, played out in front of the entire team. McGee, a wide receiver, wanted no part of this action. As a wide receiver, he wouldn't be asked to make this kind of a block, and in the past he had suffered a number of head injuries. So McGee went to Lombardi and explained the situation to him. My father told McGee that he couldn't excuse him from the drill. On the other hand, if McGee could find a way to stay out of the nutcracker, my father wouldn't go out of his way to say anything about it. And that's what happened. 
For nine years, McGee never took part in the Nutcracker. Curiously, over those nine years, McGee's teammates never realized that he was escaping participation in the much-dreaded drill. This is a case where Lombardi showed flexibility in a special situation. Ultimately, however, leadership comes down to doing the difficult things. You have to push and pull your people beyond their own perceived limits. You have to continually test your people. What motivates and inspires them? How much pressure can you apply? And how will they respond? Will they align with the vision? You will be called upon to do things that are unpopular. If you want to be popular and well-liked, you won't push as hard, because you don't want people to dislike you. The desire to be liked interferes with the hard decisions a leader must make. Lombardi had disagreements with a number of the people who reported to him, as all leaders do. And, like most leaders, Lombardi had a few people who rebelled against his way of leadership. They went somewhere else, and he stayed. The interesting thing is that almost every one of his players, even the ones who left, still respected him. Lombardi Rule number 6. Win respect. Affection may follow. Respect motivates. Win their respect first. There were some people I knew I couldn't push, some people I had my doubts about, and I pushed them and berated them to find out what I could about their character, their limits. Those are the things that are important to me because this is what the game is all about. With the exception of Starr and a few others like him who couldn't perform at their best when yelled at, my father would get passionately, furiously mad at people. He would let them know about their mistakes on the spot, in real time. He would break an individual down to rock bottom with an emotional tongue-lashing that could be absolutely devastating. I witnessed many of these verbal assaults, and I was often deeply embarrassed when it happened. These players were my heroes. And it must be said that I was on the receiving end of many of these verbal dressing-downs. We had a lot in common, those players and I. An hour later, or a day later, he'd be patting that same player on the back, telling him that things were going well and that there were no hard feelings. In many of those cases, I think he realized he had gone too far, and now it was time to rebuild some bridges. If I yell at someone, he used to say, five minutes later I don't know what I said or who I said it to. And that was true as far as it went, although there were many times at home when I could only wish he was that quick to forget. Lombardi Rule number 7. Motivate by inches. Better to begin with small victories than large frustrations. The goal of winning the championship, therefore, had to be built on the foundation of a thousand small victories. It depended on each player seeing the connection between his individual effort and winning the championship. It depended on motivation and inspiration by degree people being encouraged by each small victory to move on to the next challenge. When my father joined the New York Giants as an assistant in 1954, he brought a reputation of being an outstanding high school and college coach, but he was new to professional football. He understood the running game, but was not well grounded in the passing attack as the pros played it. He might have taken the stance, Hey, I'm the coach. You'll do it my way. 
Instead, he chose to ask some of the veteran players for help. During his first training camp, after the evening meeting, Lombardi would walk over to the players' dorm and kick around a play he had put in that afternoon. Could it be run better? Once veteran players like Frank Gifford, Charlie Connerly, and Kyle Rote understood that Lombardi was sincere in asking for their help, they opened up and shared their knowledge with him. During film work with both the Giants and Packers, there was a surprising amount of interplay between the coaches and players. Players like Hornung, Starr, and Greg drew on their vast experience to suggest things that could work and also voiced their opinion as to what wouldn't work. Studying game film the week before the 1967 NFL championship against the Dallas Cowboys, for example, Jerry Kramer, all-pro guard for the Packers for many years, noticed that the player across from him, Cowboy defensive tackle Jethro Pugh, stood up at the snap of the ball. Kramer thought that in a short yardage situation, he could get under Pew and leverage him out of the way. He mentioned this to Lombardi, and a play was put in to take advantage of Kramer's observation. Although he didn't know it at the time, Kramer's experienced read of Pew would play a major role in the championship game. The Packers won the 1967 title on the last play of the game, with Bart Starr running a quarterback sneak behind Kramer's block on Pew. Despite his reputation as a martinet, Vince Lombardi was a leader who listened to his people. Years later, Kramer told me a story that happened the year my father retired as coach of the Packers. They were getting ready to play their arch-rivals, the Chicago Bears. The challenge was how to block Dick Butkus, the great Chicago middle linebacker. The coaching staff put in a blocking scheme that Kramer, who had played against Butkus for many years, knew wouldn't work. When Jerry pointed this out to the coaches, they wouldn't listen, and he was told to block the way it was drawn up. Jerry decided then and there to retire at the end of the season. Lombardi Rule Number 8 Go where the wisdom is. People want to help you and the organization succeed. It motivates them. When Lombardi put in a new play on offense, he would ask his veteran players, offensive and defensive, for their opinion as to whether the play could work. This accomplished two things. First, he got an expert opinion from people who had seen similar plays over the years. Second, he made those players feel that they were part of things, that the play was their idea and they had an investment in its success. Motivation is fostered in an atmosphere of mutual respect. Good leaders are confident and comfortable enough with themselves that they freely accept opinions from others, including opinions that are diametrically opposed to their own. They know they don't have all the answers. They look for input, debate, and discussion before making a decision. They understand that they don't learn very much from people who agree with them all the time. They understand that empowerment is not so much a process as it is an atmosphere of respect created by a leader who listens more than he or she expounds. Leaders enjoy a diversity of opinions. They enjoy a good argument based on contesting ideas. They're not afraid of having strong people around them. They will put up with a few characters if their offbeat contributions to team chemistry outweigh the distractions they may create. 
Sam Huff, the all-pro linebacker who played for the New York Giants for many years and later was a player coach under Lombardi with the Redskins, spoke to this point. He wanted you to stand up to him, to fight back, Huff said. When he'd get mad at someone, he'd go back to his office and say, I wish the SOB would stand up and say what he thinks. Chapter 9. Vince Lombardi on Winning I'm here because we win. You're here because we win. When we lose, we're gone. Minutes before the kickoff for Super Bowl II, Coach Lombardi called his players together and made a short speech. This is what he said. It's very difficult for me to say anything. Anything I say would be repetitious. This is our 23rd game this year. I don't know anything else I could tell this team. Boys, you are a good football team. You are a proud football team. You are the world champions of the National Football League for the third time in a row, for the first time in the history of the National Football League. That's a great thing to be proud of. But let me just say this. All the glory, everything you've had is going to be small in comparison to winning this one. This is a great thing for you. You're the only team in the history of the National Football League to ever have this opportunity to win the Super Bowl twice. Boys, I tell you, I'd be so proud of that, I just fill myself up with myself. I just get bigger and bigger. It's not going to come easy. This is a club that's going to hit you. They're going to try and hit you, and you've got to take it out of them. You've got to be 40 Tigers out there. That's all. Just run. Just block and tackle. If you do that, there's no question what the answer is going to be in this ball game. Keep your poise. You've faced them all. There's nothing they can show you out there you haven't faced a hundred times before, right? This locker room speech, short as it is, embodies many of the leadership elements emphasized in this book. Vision You're the only team in the history of the NFL to ever have this opportunity to win the Super Bowl twice. Pride you are a proud football team. Challenge. This is a club that's going to hit you. Discipline. Keep your poise. Mental toughness. They're going to try and hit you, and you've got to take it out of them. Motivation. Inspiration. Everything you've done is going to be small compared to this. Excellence. You are the world champions. Passion. You've got to be 40 tigers out there. Confidence. There's nothing they can show you out there you haven't faced a hundred times. Commitment. It's not going to come easy. Results. If you do that, there's no question what the answer is going to be in this ballgame. This brings us to the final element of Lombardi's leadership model. Results. The answer the outcome, the ultimate effect. It all comes down to this all-important consequence of your leadership abilities. The absence of results renders your leadership meaningless. Bookstores are full of the debate about organizational structure, hierarchical or flat, centralized or decentralized, divisional or non-divisional, and everything in between. Yet, it's not structure, but results, 
that truly make a leader. Leadership is not a position. It's a process that produces the desired results. If you don't produce results, if you can't execute, you are not a leader. Lombardi Rule Number 1. Run to win. Set a high standard for your team and keep that standard out in front, on the wall, on your ring, in your mission statement, where all can see it. There are few subjects on which my father made more comments than the subject of winning. In other words, results. And, as we'll see, a couple of those comments he wound up wishing he'd never made. Is winning everything? Let's start with the most controversial comment of all. Winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. I'm constantly amazed at the number of people who know nothing about my father except that, one, he was a football coach, and, two, he uttered, or endorsed, or seemed to have endorsed, that truly memorable sentence. Some people take the saying on face value and agree with it. Well, of course winning is the only thing. What else would there be? Other people are a little uncomfortable with the aggressive little statement. Well, it's probably true enough in the adult worlds of warfare, business, and sports, but maybe it's not exactly the right message we should be giving to our children at a formative stage in their lives. Let's let them stay innocent for a while longer. A third group of people are deeply offended by it. They take it as the distillation of everything that's wrong with football, American culture, capitalism, or mankind. Well, what else would you expect from the leading pitchman and apologist for a sport that is deeply rooted in ego, greed, and mayhem? I think a number of people in this last group have either encountered someone personally, or maybe heard stories about someone they know, who attempted to embody the philosophy that would seem to lie behind the saying. Sometimes I hear these stories myself, about some local Little League coach or Pop Warner coach who has been bashing his kids over the head with some version of winning isn't everything. And it's not just coaches. I am amazed to see in my own community parents pressuring a high school principal to fire a coach who doesn't win enough to suit them. Lombardi Rule Number Two Beware the Power of Quotability. Pithiness works to the leader's advantage, but the strong quote out of context can be a distraction. That's not what my father was about, and that certainly wasn't his leadership model. So what exactly did Vince Lombardi say about winning and results, and what did he mean by it? As I set out to answer this question, I'm much indebted to Michael O'Brien and David Marinus, the authors of the two best biographies of my father. Vince, and When Pride Still Mattered, respectively. Their having tracked down the colorful origins of the comment gives me more confidence in my analysis of it. Red Blake, the legendary head football coach at West Point, was my father's boss, and, by my father's own accounting, the most important influence on his coaching philosophy. Blake arranged to have hung on the walls of the Army dressing room what he called the Ten Football Axioms. This technique of hanging inspirational signs on the locker room walls was imitated by my father in Green Bay. The purpose of the game is to win, read one of Blake's axioms. To dilute the will to win is to destroy the purpose of the game. 
Blake's wall hangings certainly had a profound effect on my father's psyche. The will to win became a stock phrase in the speech and other of my father's public utterances. The will to excel and the will to win. They endure. They are more important than any events that occasion them. In his letter of retirement to the Packers' executive committee, Lombardi expanded on the same theme. Each of us, if we would grow, must be committed to excellence and to victory. Even though we know complete victory cannot be attained, it must be pursued with all one's might. The championships, the money, the color, all of these things linger only in the memory. It is the spirit, the will to excel, the will to win. These are the things that endure. These are the important things, and they will always remain in Green Bay. The will to win was a constant theme in my father's public comments, and because Lombardi borrowed the phrase from his mentor, Red Blake, we can almost make the leap to the purpose of the game is to win, and from there to winning is the only thing. In a very real sense, Lombardi was absolutely right when he told his players, in the privacy of the team meeting room, that winning was the only thing. I would make the case that, especially back in his first year or two at Green Bay, he was giving them good career advice. A CEO coming into a turnaround situation would be well advised to consider saying something along the same line, emphasizing results. This organization is in deep trouble. Either we all produce, or we're all out of here. And even after the immediate crisis is passed, that same CEO might keep reminding people on a regular basis that no organization has a guaranteed right to exist. Yesterday doesn't matter. We're only winners if we win today. Lombardi Rule Number 3 Winning is the only thing, but only in context. Sometimes the leader has to make the obvious point. If we don't win, we're out of business. In desperate times, this approach builds team spirit. In good times, it fights complacency. In his welcoming speech, Lombardi generally said something along the lines of the following. I'm here because we win. You're here because we win. When we lose, we're gone. At one point, presumably after being publicly scolded once again for his alleged obsession with winning, my father expressed his exasperation. What am I supposed to do, lose? He complained aloud to Jim Lawler, his college roommate from decades earlier. They hired me out here to win games. So, in a very real sense, his message to the troops was only a healthy dose of reality. Play your heart out and play well, and you will probably stay with this team. Do anything less and all bets are off. Do anything less and you'd be smart to keep your bags packed. And he was also making the obvious point that no matter what other interests his players had been pursuing in the off-season, business ventures, hobbies, parties, it was now time to get serious again. Within the rules, he wanted to be better than the opponent. I'm never ready to settle for a tie, he once commented. And even more important, he wanted his players to believe that they were the best in the world. He wanted them to believe that every game was theirs to win. Second place is meaningless. You can't always be first, but you have to believe that you should have been, that you were never beaten, that time just ran out on you. 
We didn't actually lose, he told himself and his players. We just ran out of time. It wasn't really a defeat. It was more like a win that was nipped in the bud. With a little more time, we would have been successful. Lombardi Rule Number 4 Try to win them all, but play by the rules. Games are fun only because there are rules and referees. Football without rules would be an athletic riot. The stock exchange without rules would be an entrepreneurial riot. Why this insistence on winning whenever possible, and even interpreting losses as wins that were simply frustrated by the clock? I think the answer lies in a phrase my father used frequently, the winning habit. When Lombardi arrived in Green Bay, he found players with the habits and attitudes of mediocrity. Players were painfully aware of their limitations, playing less to win than to avoid embarrassment. In other words, the Packers didn't see themselves as winners. As noted previously, their record the year before he was hired was 1-10-1. Into this difficult situation, a cycle of failure, loss of confidence, and more failure, came Lombardi, a leader and a strong self-believer, with high self-esteem and resiliency. His approach was clear from the outset. Believe in these players so they can believe in themselves. It should be noted that 13 of the players who were part of the 1-10-1 team subsequently went on to be All-Pro. Lombardi Rule number 5. Be a good winner. This will make your organization proud of itself, and pride will help you in the next round of competition. And anyway, it can't be smart to diss the losing side. Won't they just be more motivated next time around? Lombardi was fond of quoting one of his heroes, General Douglas MacArthur, on the subject of losing well and winning well. Competitive sports keeps alive in all of us a spirit of vitality and enterprise, MacArthur once wrote, in a paragraph that my father eventually built into the speech. It teaches the strong to know when they are weak, and the brave to face themselves when they are afraid. To be proud and unbending in defeat, yet humble and gentle in victory to master ourselves before we attempt to master others, to learn to laugh, yet never forget how to weep, and it gives a predominance of courage over timidity. Mastering ourselves before we attempt to master others, being humble and gentle in victory, being a gracious winner, these are certainly not the prescriptions of a win-at-all-costs leader. Winning was critical, but it was neither everything nor the only thing. So far in this book, there hasn't been a lot of worms I view football. I've used specific game situations to illustrate my points and devoted some space to individual plays, like the Packer sweep, that reveal something about my father's leadership philosophy. But other than that, I've tried to avoid a lot of details about specific football tactics. If we're in search of the larger themes and lessons of Coach Lombardi's leadership style, then an in-depth consideration of specific blocking patterns or pass routes seems irrelevant. Some of my father's game plans are stored carefully in my office. I think of them as something very special. Football historians and die-hard Packers fans would probably find them as interesting as I do. At the end of the day, though, I think we would agree that all those X's and O's don't reveal a lot about how Lombardi motivated, inspired, and led people. 
Even so, I think it would be helpful to take a few of my father's ideas on the specifics of how to win a football game and think about their larger implications. Do they, separately or together, tell us more about the Lombardi leadership style? And even after discounting for the fact that football is not business, do they offer us any useful ideas for leading an organization? I believe that if you block and tackle better than the other team and the breaks are even, you're going to win. In other words, put your faith in the fundamentals. You don't have to have great runners, my father once commented. You do have to have great blockers. Yes, there's always the chance that the stray fumble or interception will break the game open, either in your favor or against it. But, absent that, a good offensive line will win the game for you every time. To me, that sounds like the right prescription for most businesses. Help your front-line people, your sales force, your engineers, and the rest is likely to follow. Every game boils down to doing the things you do best and doing them over and over again. Lombardi Rule Number 6. Block and Tackle. Execute the fundamentals, and the rest will follow. Why stick to fundamentals? Because you never know when the critical moment in the competition is about to happen, and because when that critical moment does arrive, you have to be playing at the top of your game. The team that controls the ball controls the game. My father made this point in a sales training film, so we know he had sales on his mind when he said it. But obviously ball control is the name of the game in football. If you hold the ball as long as you can, you minimize the other team's opportunity to score. The business corollary is probably something like, define the turf on which you choose to compete. Stay on the offensive. Don't fall back to defense. Make your competitors react to you rather than the other way around. Lombardi Rule Number 7. Play to Jump on Opportunity. If there are only a small number of big plays in the course of a game, or in the life cycle of a product, you have to be playing at a high level of excellence in order to take full advantage of those opportunities. I put this quote here as a deliberate antidote to several of the preceding ones. Although my father was a believer in the fundamentals and in playing the odds through ball control, he was far from a plodder. He liked a good razzle-dazzle play as much as any coach. The point was to be prepared for all circumstances and act with the confidence that comes from preparation. There were many games in which the Packers faced desperate circumstances, down by more than a field goal with only minutes to play. When Bart Starr marshaled the offense, worked the clock, and aggressively moved the team down the field. They couldn't have done it by being cautious or fearful. They did it by being confident. Maybe the business equivalent is that the bold departure can be fundamental. In other words, with enough care and preparation, a break from tradition, even a desperation move, can be executed from a position of strength. I've talked to any number of business leaders who tell me that some of their dumbest ideas were turned into winners by people who believed in those ideas and implemented the hell out of them. Be aggressive and keep going. Lombardi Rule Number 8 Play for elegance, but take any win you can get. No one comes up with an ugly strategy on purpose. But sometimes you play on a frozen field or throw into the wind, 
and ugly things happen that help you win. Celebrate. This is an extension of the previous idea, and it speaks to something at the core of my father's philosophy. Good wins aren't always the most elegant ones. Good wins can also be the result of grit, determination, and mental toughness. Football is a game of inches, Lombardi once said, and inches make the champion. Even ugly inches count. The lesson for business? Plan for beauty and elegance as you implement your strategic plan. Assume that you'll beat the competition aesthetically. Then, when you win in some other way, with clumsy or lucky elements, or whatever, celebrate that win just as enthusiastically. Lombardi Rule Number 9. Play on Tradition. Tradition motivates. Tradition helps players subordinate their individual interests to the needs of the team. If you don't have traditions, make some up. Businesses certainly have their techniques for invoking tradition. Celebrations of significant corporate anniversaries, long-term service pins, lobby displays of product or plant evolutions, brand celebrations, and so on. All designed to help employees feel like they are part of something proud, competent, and competitive. Something bigger than themselves. Using tradition has become more difficult for both sports teams and corporations. It's far less common today for players to spend their entire careers with a single team than it used to be. Similarly, people now leaving college or business school are likely to hold jobs with a half dozen or more corporations over the course of their working lives. I don't have an answer for this, other than to say that if my father was right, if you don't win without tradition then organizations have to work doubly hard in today's climate to build and invoke traditions. A winning coach is simply a guy who finds the winning blend. Vince Lombardi assembled winning teams the same way mechanical engineers used to design the critical components of automobiles, through the cut-and-try approach. The critical difference, of course, is that my father's raw materials were people, rather than metals and plastics and that people change and interact in ways that steel, copper, and petroleum-based products don't. He had to find the winning combination, which, by the way, I don't think he ever thought of as a simple task. But again, when the opening kickoff leaves the tee and the clock starts to run, the coach is more or less a spectator. He learns whether he has or has not put together the winning combination. One last general thought on the subject of winning. Getting there may not be all you hoped for. My father stated one of these paradoxes very succinctly. We want to perfect ourselves so that we can win with less struggle and increasing ease. But the strange thing is that it's not the easy wins we ostensibly seek, but rather the difficult struggles to which we really look forward. It's not much fun to play golf in a foursome in which the other three players are far worse than you are. It's equally frustrating to be such a relatively lousy golfer that you slow down the other three members of your foursome. We struggle to improve ourselves to be the best. We want to win. But winning isn't the only thing. If we could take a pill to win every contest easily, most of us probably wouldn't take it. As my father would say, the struggle's the thing. The second paradox is probably even more troubling, 
My father likened success to a narcotic. It saps the elation of victory, he once said, and deepens the despair of defeat. The leader is particularly vulnerable to these highs and lows. The leader is the embodiment of the organization's successes and failures. Even though he or she may have less direct impact on those successes and failures than many people in the front lines have, Attempting to explain his reasons for stepping down as the Packers' coach, Lombardi emphasized that a win was sometimes more of a burden than a loss. When I quit, I knew I'd never be back coaching. I knew I wouldn't be able to take it again. The pressures were so horrible. You know the pressure of losing is bad, awful, because it kills you eventually. But the pressure of winning is worse, infinitely worse because it keeps on torturing you and torturing you and torturing you. At Green Bay, I was winning one championship after another, after another, after another. I couldn't take it, because I blamed myself, damned myself, whenever they lost a game. I couldn't ever forgive myself for a loss, because I felt I'd let them down. I felt I wouldn't be able to raise myself to the right pitch for the big games, and then I wouldn't be able to raise them to their best effort. Lombardi Rule Number 10 Understand the dangers of winning. If winning comes too hard, your team may get demoralized. But if winning comes too easily, it will be harder to be motivated, even as the world is expecting more and more from you. Watch your personal and organizational plan for the day after you succeed. Obviously, these are the words of a leader in an emotional transition from one phase of his or her life to the next. This leader is reflecting candidly as he or she looks back on a situation that has included both wonderful and difficult elements. We can't take my father's just-quoted comments at face value. In fact, Lombardi was going back to coaching at that very moment, as the newly hired coach of the Washington Redskins. So it's obvious that the lure of being in the game was powerful enough to overwhelm all of the perceived downsides. He had decided that he could reach deep once again and find a way to motivate and inspire himself and his football team. But it's clear to me, judging from my father's experience, that a leader always has to be looking beyond the next horizon. He or she has to be aware of the old Chinese proverb, Be careful what you wish for. You may get it. He or she has to be asking constantly, What happens if, against all these long odds, I succeed? Epilogue All the man there is. You don't do what is right once in a while, but all of the time. Maybe this one sentence, all those one-syllable words tumbling out to convey a timeless piece of wisdom, captures the essence of Vince Lombardi's leadership model. Of all the lessons I learned from Lombardi, all pro guard and author Jerry Kramer once commented, from all his sermons on commitment and integrity and the work ethic, that one hit home the hardest. I've found in business that only 15 or 20 percent of the people do things right all the time. The other 80 or 85 percent are taking shortcuts, looking for the easy way, either stealing from others or cheating themselves. I've got an edge because whenever I'm tempted to screw off, to cut corners, I hear that raspy voice saying, This is the right way to do it. Which way are you going to do it, mister? 
After my father died, Willie Davis paid a tribute to him that has stuck with me ever since. Davis was the Packers' all-pro, Hall of Fame defensive end, and he understood my father as well as anybody. He is all the man there is, Davis said. In this short closing chapter, I'd like to make a few final observations about Vince Lombardi, his leadership model, my relationship with him, and his legacy. A Man of Paradoxes I began this book by describing a man of paradoxes. I'm tempted to end on that same note. Yes, Vince Lombardi could be just as much of an SOB as his biggest detractor ever depicted him. And yes, he could intimidate you if you let him. And he was a doting grandfather who loved nothing more than getting down on his hands and knees and making silly noises while playing with his grandkids. Lombardi Rule Number One Embrace Paradox Emerson said it best, A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. He could be rude and overbearing toward his players in ways that would take your breath away. Lots of men disliked my father, particularly those who only knew him second-hand through media reports. He was also courteous and considerate. Most women were completely charmed by him. They had a lot of difficulty squaring the media image of the terrible Vince Lombardi with this perfect gentleman they had the privilege of meeting. As I think the preceding chapters have illustrated, Coach Lombardi was very demanding of his players, his assistants, his family members, and everyone else who came into his orbit. He demanded the most they could give and the best they could give. One thing he demanded, probably above all else, was personal responsibility. To be responsible, from my father's perspective, meant being answerable and accountable for your actions and meeting your obligations and duties without prodding from a superior. Around him you just wouldn't consider dogging it or mailing it in. That was simply unthinkable. He held his players to a particularly high standard. They were all gifted athletes who had a responsibility to use their talents to the fullest extent. If you give me anything less than your best, you're not only cheating yourself, your coaches, your teammates, everybody in Green Bay, and everything pro football stands for. You're also cheating the maker who gave you the talent. I will try to make each of you the best football player you can possibly be, he told his players time and time again. I will try with every fiber in me, and I will try and try and try. This wasn't the passion of a coach simply trying to win football games. It was the philosophy of a driven man who felt that all of us have obligations that we can't shirk or avoid. I think a boy with talent has a moral obligation to use it, and I will not relent in my own responsibility. He felt that the truly gifted players had a special obligation in this regard. Every once in a while a young player with the talent, but not the habits, would arrive in training camp. People knew it was only a matter of time before Vince Lombardi took the new player on as a personal challenge. Talent is not only a blessing, it is a burden, as the gifted ones will soon find out. When Vin is challenged to try and make a great one out of a ball player, my mother Marie once said, I can only feel sorry for that player. Vin is going to make a hole in his head and pour everything in. When it starts, the player hasn't any idea what he's in for and he hasn't got a chance. He'll get hammered and hammered and hammered, 
until he's what Vin wants him to be. You can't resist this thing. You can't fight it. I don't know how else to live. Unless a man believes in himself and makes a total commitment to his career and puts everything he has into it, his mind, his body, and his heart, what's life worth to him? He also demanded a player's intelligent effort. He could excuse physical mistakes, especially if one of his players was matched up against a superior opponent. He could understand a player being blocked out of the play every now and then. As a relatively small college player, after all, he was certainly blocked more than he wanted to be. But it was inexcusable to stay blocked. What Lombardi refused to overlook were mental errors. Mental errors, he insisted, showed a lack of preparation, something within the individual responsibility of each player. Lombardi's system was simple, logical, and methodical. The players knew what to do, when to do it, and why they did it. He wanted his players to perform free of doubt, and he had a system that was simple enough that he could hold the player accountable for what he did or failed to do. I have been called a tyrant, but I have also been called the coach of the simplest system in football, and I suppose there is some truth in both of those. The perfect name for the perfect coach would be Simple Simon Legree. Lombardi also demanded execution. If there was a play, you ran it. If there was a rule, you obeyed it. There would be no excuses. During practice, he expected every pass to be completed. You'd never point out to him that the ball was wet or the wind was blowing too hard. He expected his players to adapt to the prevailing conditions. By so doing, he took away a whole universe of excuses. Lombardi Rule Number Two No Excuses Help People Take Responsibility and then don't accept excuses. He was equally intolerant of excuses for off-the-field behavior. During his coaching days at St. Cecilia's in New Jersey, he once coached his brother Joe, who was 17 years his junior. Lombardi had a rule that a player had to be in bed by 10 p.m. the night before every game. The big contest for Saints, as for most high school teams, was the Thanksgiving Day game commonly played against a school's greatest rival. One Thanksgiving Eve, Vince's and Joe's mother, my grandmother, asked Joe for help in getting the house ready for the family's Thanksgiving feast, traditionally held after the football game. Joe agreed and finished cleaning and waxing the floor just after 10 p.m. that night. As he was putting away the pail and mop, Vince walked into the house. He took one look at his younger brother, caught red-handed breaking curfew, and said, You're not playing tomorrow. No matter that young Joe was helping out his mom, who happened to be preparing the dinner that the coach would be eating the next day, no matter that Joe was an all-county guard and a valuable contributor to his team. A rule was a rule. Joe rode bench for the biggest game of the year. Rigid? Yes. Effective? Yes. Lombardi followed exactly the same procedure on the professional level. During training camp, the Packers had to be in bed, close off, lights out, by 11 p.m. One night, Emlyn Tunnell, the future Hall of Fame defensive back who played for both the Giants and the Packers, walked into the dorm one minute before 11. There he encountered my father. That'll be $50, Lombardi barked. 
Hey, Tanel objected, surprised. It's not even eleven yet. Yes, Emlyn, my father said, in a slightly less stern tone of voice. But you know you can't be in bed with your clothes off by eleven. They both laughed. Tunnel went off to bed. And the fine stuck. Ability involves responsibility. Power, to its last particle, is duty. Building Accountability If you believe, as I do and as my father did, that leaders don't do much more than make other people more effective at their work, then the leader's most important job is to make people accountable for what they do. Lombardi had a three-pronged approach to building accountability among his players. First, he told his players exactly what he expected of them and why. He believed that they couldn't be held accountable for their work if they didn't understand what was expected of their work. Almost in a literal sense, he painted a picture for the players of what it would look like when they performed their job excellently. During training camp, he would stand at the blackboard and diagram every play that he expected his players to run. He did this for every player on every play. You never win a game unless you beat the guy in front of you. The score on the board doesn't mean a thing. That's for the fans. You've got to win the war with the man in front of you. You've got to get your man. But football wasn't simply a collection of individuals getting their men. Football, my father stressed incessantly, was teamwork. Football, at the professional level, was a group of supremely talented athletes making sacrifices for each other, subordinating their individual goals to the goals of the team. Selflessness, as opposed to selfishness, is what I try to teach. Do your damnedest. Give everything you've got because you are playing with the greatest group, the greatest team, yet to swing out onto a battlefield. If you can instill that, you can win ball games. The second Lombardi tactic for building accountability was giving the players all the tools they needed to do their jobs. He recognized that he couldn't ask people to take accountability for their work if they didn't have everything they needed to do their work. Perhaps this sounds self-evident. But look back over the places where you've worked and ask yourself whether you always had the right tools. Did you ever suffer with an uncomfortable chair, a dumb computer, outmoded software, bad market information, a truck with mechanical ailments, inadequate lighting, or any of the thousand and one other problems that plague the typical workplace? The Packers didn't have these problems or their football equivalents. They had all the tools they needed. They were prepared mentally and physically for every game. They were almost never surprised by what the opposing team did. In the fourth quarter, they almost always found themselves in better physical condition than the opposition. Their bodies were one of their most important tools. At my father's insistence, the Packers did everything first class, facilities, equipment, travel, and lodging. Lombardi understood that each of these things, considered separately, was more or less trivial. Taken together, though, they created an atmosphere of professionalism. They instilled the clear sense in the minds of the players that everything possible was being done to ensure their success. Finally, after telling his players what he expected of them and giving them the tools to do it, Lombardi got out of their way. To some extent, the instilling of accountability was a cumulative and continuing process. Veterans were expected to understand their responsibilities on the first day of training camp. 
First-year players were cut a little slack until they were brought up to speed. But there was another dynamic at work as well, a weekly transfer of responsibility from coach to team. At the beginning of the week, Lombardi had to break down what had happened on Sunday, both the good and the bad, and point it out to the players. But by midweek, he had to be accentuating the positive and explaining how the Packers were going to win their next game. This was the confidence-building phase. Lombardi Rule number 3. Build Accountability. Paint the picture, provide the tools, and get out of the way. By game time, he knew the game was out of his hands and in the hands of his players. Of the seventy or so plays in a typical game, Lombardi sent in less than a dozen, and even then his quarterback had the right to change the play with an audible at the line of scrimmage. It would be an exaggeration to say that the coach was now simply the cheerleader. But in a real sense, the coach was now fan number one of the team he had trained and equipped. My mother had an interesting perspective on this process. On Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, she used to say half-jokingly, we don't talk, because on Wednesday, he has to go out there and convince himself, the coaches, and the players that they can win. On Thursday, we say hello. On Friday, he is civil. At the beginning of the week, in other words, the weight of the world was on his shoulders. By the end of the week, he had put that weight squarely on the shoulders of the players. He had made them accountable. Lombardi on Lombardi, one last time. Being Vince Lombardi's oldest child and only son, bearing the same name and more than a passing physical resemblance to him, has been a mixed bag. The thrill and excitement of being around pro football, the championships, the opportunity to rub shoulders with, and even become friends with, some of the greatest football players of that era, these are experiences I wouldn't trade for anything. Being a teenager whose father was the most famous sports personality of his day was another matter. It seemed like there was always pressure. Some of the pressure was imposed from the outside. Lots more of it was self-imposed. For example, how do you handle the simple act of meeting someone? Do you give them a confident handshake and say in a firm voice, Hi, I'm Vince Lombardi. If you do, isn't it likely they're going to think you're a little too full of yourself? riding on Dad's coattails? Or do you try to fade into the woodwork? Do you mumble your name during the introductions, hoping no one will make the connection? And what happens when they do make the connection? What do you do when, in their eyes, you see the unspoken assessment? Well, he's nothing like his father. For much of my life, I opted to stay in the background. Far too late, I realized that that was a mistake. I realize that what other people think and feel is their problem. Maybe I can influence it. Maybe I can't. Today I'm very comfortable with who my father was and who I am. The fact that I'm a professional speaker and that I've written a book about my father's leadership model is a reflection of that comfort. Writing this book and speaking to groups around the country gives me an opportunity to celebrate my father's accomplishments, to interpret him for new and younger audiences, and to add my own reflections on leadership as they evolve over time. It's a rewarding life, and I'm grateful to my father for the part he played in it. You can't just dream yourself into character. 
You must hammer. You must forge one out for yourself. Sam Huff, the great middle linebacker for the Giants and Redskins, who also served as a Redskin coach under Lombardi, once recalled a conversation he had with my father. Lombardi was excited because he thought that he was in a position to leave his family an inheritance of a million dollars. That was a lot of money in 1968 dollars, and it was quite an accomplishment for the butcher's son from New York. Hoff was bold enough to contradict him, or at least to suggest a different way of looking at things. Coach, he said, you've already given your family something that's worth a whole lot more than any money you could ever leave. You've given them the Lombardi name. Lombardi rule number four. Treasure your legacy. Appreciate what's been given to you. Give as much to someone else. I don't know how my father reacted to that comment, but from my perspective, Sam got it right. After the cheers have died down and the stadium is empty, after the headlines have been written, and after you are back in the quiet of your room and the championship ring has been placed on the dresser, and all the pomp and fanfare have faded, the enduring thing that is left is the dedication to doing with our lives the very best we can to make the world a better place in which to live. This is Michael Pritchard for McGraw-Hill Audio. Thank you for listening. This audiobook is co-published by American Media International and Redwood Audiobooks and is based upon the book entitled What It Takes to Be Number One by Vince Lombardi, Jr. Copyrighted in 2001 in the name of Vince Lombardi, Jr. Published by arrangement with the McGraw-Hill Companies, Incorporated. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.